Episode 7, Info Zone. We're going to hear all the latest news about Star Wars Episode 7. Casting news, plot rumors, title rumors, special effects rumors. We're here with the whole Star Wars 7 Info team. We got Patrick Rapole, the human computer. He's got a lot of data. He's going to crank through the numbers and see what comes up. And we got Jim. He's the emotional boy. He's going to tell us about seeing Star Wars uh, at a drive-in theater. Probably. Um, are you on bath salts this week? What 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 happened? Uh, I, I just uh, thought we'd do something. Di- you know how like we don't have a lot of listeners because we're not very current and we don't. I, I figured we could just do a little kind of a clickbaity episode, and uh, instead of covering Richard Linkletter this episode, we could just talk about Star Wars Episode Seven. No. I'm not interested in that at all. Okay. Uh, I guess that answers that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Oh, and I'm Jim Laskowski. And uh, with us, uh, our guest, of course, you know her um, from her hilarious parody Twitter account, uh, Spanish 101 Dracula. <laughs> wow. Yep. yep. And you're also me. a shark. <laughs> yes. I... I I contain multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, internet humorist. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Yeah. yeah I'm and, quite and, the fan. And, and, my, and my partner, uh, Regina McCarthy. What? McCarthy? What? What's your last name? Barry. Barry. What? Regina Barry. <laughs> wow. Okay. We're off to a good start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm being distracted by my roommate right now. That's she's, fine. She's showing me kitty pictures. You should probably... Adorable. You should her probably out. just stop. Yeah, we're recording a oh. podcast. Is She's so cool. I, I <laughs> really don't like the term kitty picture because it sounds too much like D's instead of T's. Oh. <laughs> if we could say kitten pictures, I would feel way better. Okay, kitten no, pictures. I'm sorry. Underage kitty pictures? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, they're not underage kitty pictures. <laughs> they're the perfect age to be a kitty. <laughs> Look, Regina, let's just get to the really important thing. What? Um, I heard that uh, uh, Max von Sydow is going to be in uh, the new Star Wars movie. Yeah. Do you think the Star Wars movie is going to be as good as The Seventh Seal? I, I think it's going to be better. Oh, that's right. I mean, I mean you're setting a, a really kind of low hurdle to jump there. That's true. It is Star Wars. Yeah. Not some boring black and white movie. I know, right? Uh-huh. Subtitles, please. I really like The Sixth Seal myself. What was the that one? one? Oh, the prequel, cool. yeah. Yeah, it was the seal that could see dead seals. That, that, <laughs> that was awesome. That was really that was really sad. Yeah. That was great. It had layers. I, mm-hmm. I liked it. Yeah, Bruce yeah. Seal was dead the whole time. Yeah. yeah. It I had that great it. soundtrack by that one R&B singer. I can't remember his name, but it was really good. R. Kelly. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Right. Hey, Jim. I'm ecstatic. Are you? Yes. You know why? Why? Because we're going to be talking about Richard Linkletter. Yeah. And I, I feel a bit selfish lately, i got to admit. Because between this, this episode and then the next episode, we're covering directors that I really like a yeah. lot. Well, I mean, clearly I hate Richard Linkletter, so this is a real sacrifice for me to sit down and watch no. Daisy Confused again, to watch School of Rock. Like, these are all very painful movies. Um, this wasn't at all a delight. It was like uh, High Hartley all over again. Exactly. I'm a big fan of Richard Linkletter. 
Oh, as well. Good. I, I'm, I don't think I'm as big a fan as you, um, but not. I am a fan. Nice. So yeah, um, I don't know if we have any real business to bring up, do we? Uh, well, do you think Oscar Isaacs is going to be playing a good guy or a bad guy in the new Star Wars movie? Mm, I, I I honestly don't know a whole lot about the cast, and I, I think all I heard was Adam Driver, and that's uh, it. Uh, uh, Oscar Isaacs inside of Inside Lewin Davis. Oh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think he's going to play a good guy? I mean, these are the things people want to hear. This is why we have this bi-monthly podcast. (laughs) Bi-monthly? I thought it was bi-weekly. Just as long as it's bi. Yeah, that's that's how I feel. It's it's mostly bi. Uh, (laughs) um, I guess that is... We're definitely queer-friendly. Look how we started out with all those directors, like Pedro Almodovar, Todd Haynes. We were just like coming out with our freak flag, man. That that was my gay agenda right there, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But, uh... No, uh, we're done talking about Star Wars 7. How about we talk about some movies that we watched in what amount of time, Jim? What time frame? We should probably change that because it's kind of inaccurate. You know, what movies have we watched the last couple weeks? Yeah, but then if we change the name of of the segment, then we'll never get to play my Fred Schneider song again. Oh, and that yeah. would be too much of a... Speaking of queer friendly, that I, when I came out <laughs> with that Fred Schneider, what we watched this week song, that changed the face of podcasting parody music. Yeah, it would be really hard to do a what we watch parody song if we had to keep, you know, throwing in what we watch these past couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah. The good girl. Yeah. Yeah. The new world. Crash shaft. Only Lovers Left Alive, um, um, we went this weekend, yeah. and uh, I won the coin flip, so I'm going to talk about it. Ooh. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, so I like vampire movies more than Patrick. That's true. Um, and vampire mm-hmm. fiction in general, I would say. Yeah, I guess not so much movies. I mean, um, I really like uh, like Let the Right One In, and I guess mostly like vampire TV, like uh, Buffy and True Blood Before It Got Terrible. Um but yeah, I guess like a vampire role playing game is. If anyone out there is familiar with uh, Vampire the Masquerade, that was and a you love thing. Vampire Weekend. Yeah, and Vampire Weekend, you know, yeah. get, get all like the vampire media in there. Vampire in um, Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can't literally start naming movies with vampire. In it. That's not even a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's what um, I'm known for. 
<laughs> you're not jokes. Yeah. I think maybe that's true. <laughs> like the macaroni and cheese of jokes. Like the craft version. Keep yeah. going. Okay, sorry. Um, so this movie is kind of interesting. It's more of a character study than a lot of uh, vampire movies are, um, which is, you know, usually they're they're very, like, story-based. Um, but this one's a really small scale, which is uh, pretty different. Um, it has a pretty minimal cast. Um, time frame's relatively short. It's low stakes, pun not intended. Uh, and it's kind of light on, like, like cool vampire powers. Um, there's not a lot of that. It mostly focuses on uh, the relationship between uh, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston, um, which seems like it would be difficult to pull off because uh, the characters, I mean, they're vampires, so they're uh, very kind of, like, stylized and not super relatable, but they have... Uh, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston just have this amazing chemistry, um, which allows them to pull it off. Um, the characters are really likable, even if you can't quite relate to them, because they're, they're like these really cool vampires. Um, who are 700 years yeah, older. Yeah, who are 700 years <laughs> older and, you know, know everything and, like, never uh, don't really have, like, boring uh, kind of relationship issues. Um Especially Tilda Swinton. I mean, she's amazing in this movie. Um, she is, has this very, like, genuine and loving approach, um, which is really interesting uh, for a vampire character. Um, so I thought that was something that was... Did you guys say something? Yeah, I know. I was, it's interesting that they don't have... Rela- I, I thought it was, like, an interesting commentary on... Because this is a very... It's funny. We, we watched this the same, uh, you know, this for the same episode that we're, we watched the, all the before movies. Yeah. Because this is a very romantic movie, like, you know, before sunrise. And I thought it was interesting, the implication that they don't have any relationship issues, which the yeah. implication seems to be like either they were literally perfect soulmates the second they met each other or Jim Jarmusch's take is that given a long enough timeline, all relationship issues could be flattened out and be solved. Maybe Ooh. I mean I'm I'm more want to believe the former just because yeah. you, you, I mean you, a lot of the vampire characters that I've seen tend to be a bit more flat and sort of um, more archi- archetype like archetypical than yeah. humans because like they're not human so to me that's kind of the, the point of them is that they're kind of removed from those like um, the, the petty little issues that would cause like uh, you know relationship squabbles like you might see in some other movies we might talk about later. Yeah, yeah. Um no, that's a good point. But but a lot of that that also comes with like this sort of hypersexualization which isn't really in the movie um which I thought was really interesting like the the passion that they feel I mean they obviously love each other very much but a lot of their passions are for um like art and music and nature um so that was a really interesting approach to that um to that really like they're, boring trope. They're definitely sexy in the way that vampires are traditionally sexy. Right, but it's not like uh, the Keen Peel sketch where they're kind of making fun how of how <laughs> yes. like hypersexualized vampires are and they're like, you know, licking this poor girl and everything. Like that's not really Yeah, it's it. not like everything they ever say and do is dripping with uh like a double entendre or yeah. some kind of sensuality. Yeah, and they don't wear like fetish gear. They, I mean their clothing is like the costumes are great, but it's not like yeah, it's not hypersexualized, which was uh, really refreshing. Um I actually ended up rewatching uh Let the 
the right one in um, because I wanted to get a good comparison. And they're actually pretty different movies, um, you know, besides the fact that they're pretty uh, min- minimalist and have a, like a very thoughtful approach to the subject matter. Um, and it's not so much about like the sensational fantasy aspects. Um, but Let the Right One In focuses a lot more on um, like human vampire relationships and sort of the tragedy of that, um, where it, it's sort of presenting this cycle of, you know, Ely, who's um, who, who, you know, form, you know, she and Oscar form this close relationship. But there's like this darkness at the end where it's like, oh, he's just going to end up like the like the awful guy in the beginning who's going around killing people. Um, but uh, Only Lovers Left Alive kind of uses um, the human uh, vampire relationships more as like devices to uh, understand how um, Adam and Eve, the main characters, um, relate to the world it's as a whole. V- very subtly t- uh-huh. named. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The names are super subtle. And like he's always wearing black and she's always wearing white. So maybe and they're he, perfect for and each he, other. And when he like sneaks into the hospital, his name tags are always like Dr. Faust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Caligari at one point. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's supposed <laughs> to be like cheap jokes or like that they don't really understand that people might understand that or. or they're just so. I think it's just. I think it's just all part of the heightened universe of that. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. movie. Um, well, th- actually, that kind of leads me to something that um, I didn't really care for about this movie is that um, it really hits you over the head with kind of their contempt for humanity, and especially Tom Hiddleston's character becomes kind of a soapbox. For, yeah. Like, just sort of like these are the things that I'm going to criticize about society. In uh, in the movie they call human zombies. Yeah. Which is unusual since you would think that vampires are the living undead characters generally and zombies are things that live forever. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess it was kind of the the sense of like, you know, we're alive because we have this, you know, deep appreciation for art and Mm -hmm. music and um, they're just, you know, like mindless consumers. That's kind of what I got from it. But again, with just sort of the hitting over the head. Yeah, it's, oh, look what the zombies have done to the environment. Look what the zombies are. And even when they're talking about like their favorite artists, like he has a wall full of all the artists he loves over the years and like there's like it's it's mostly <laughs> pick out your favorite. You're cool like him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> it has a thing where it's like, oh, here's some famous authors and here's some musicians. Yeah. And here's this, and then Buster Keaton is on there, so that's the one I gravitated towards. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. It, so that was that was something. Then that kind of feels like a really kind of boring cliche, um, especially when they're doing like historical name dropping. Um, It's kind of interesting because that to me didn't come off as um, look how cool we are. It was just sort of this like sentimental thing like, oh, remember when we used to hang out with Schumann and you used to hang out with William Blake and it was just sort of like remembering old friends who aren't there anymore. Yeah. Um, Which kind of for me, um, this movie talks a lot about um, like like what, what do people do when they have all this time on their hands, you know, that's, that's, yeah. See, so the thing about only lovers left a lot, I think I, it came across as more tropey to me, I guess, because I don't understand the tropes as well as you. I didn't see where they were being subverted, mm-hmm. subverted. Cause the most surprising thing in the movie, about the movie to me was how tropey it felt. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that is interesting about this movie is it could essentially be the same movie in a lot of important ways if instead of being vampires, they were merely immortal for some unexplained reason. Like, because yeah. a lot of what defines them is just the fact that they've been around for hundreds of years and that they will continue to be around for hundreds of years and not necessarily the fact that they are monsters who drink blood. Right. Um, I can see that, but I think that um, some 
uh, vampire tropes um, do get shown in these really interesting ways. Something that I really love is that Jim Jarmusch actually moves the camera, which is something that I found very frustrating in um, other of his movies that I've seen where the camera work is just so static. The camera is actually very like dynamic and flowing this, which I absolutely love. I'm, um, I'm really scared to show, to show you Stranger Than Paradise. Oh, oh, is that the one where it that's just... literally the camera does not move the whole movie. Every scene oh, is a yeah. single static shot, and yeah, then it cuts no. to black, and then it cuts to the next scene. Uh, I think if I want to see that, I'll go see a play. <laughs> um, just show her after hours, right after she'll feel better. It'll balance it out. Or crank. Let's just Ugh. take it all the way. We'll yeah. watch yeah. crank two. No. We'll follow Stranger Than Paradise with crank two. <laughs> That'll be a fun evening. And It'll then, be great. and then, and then, what, what would be in the middle? I guess wavelength would be in the middle, which is an art film that is one sustained shot of a camera slowly pulling back from a painting, revealing oh, a room. Oh, good. So, good. And maybe then like an Andrew, and, Andy Warhol retrospective. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah we'll watch Empire. Yeah. Um, so anyway, getting back to uh, on topic. Um, what was I saying? Um, so the look and feel of this movie is amazing. It's very languid. It's very cool. The opening shot um, is just gorgeous it's sort of this like slowly revolving camera um with a cover of wanda jackson's funnel of love playing and just my my jaw was on the floor it was just gorgeous and i know you were saying patrick that you don't like how jim jarmusch tends to like hit you over the head with like this is cool this is really cool but i bought it just in general (laughs) in general i find that like coolness is important to jim jarmusch and it's not at all important to me so it's just like an aspect of his work i don't ever respond to no that's fair but uh i think you pulled it off really well Um, sure especially with like the music Music choices. Um, uh, a lot of the music was done by this band Squirrel, uh, which is actually his band. So he kind of. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, He's in a band. It's not spelled Squirrel. It's spelled S Q U with an umlaut R L, all in caps. Possibly the best <laughs> metal name ever. <laughs> is, yeah, it's just, yeah. The whole soundtrack is this like crazy droning thing, ostensibly created by at the character Adam. Yeah. Um, oh who is sort of this musician who throughout the years has written so much music from this kind of weird, crazy droning music that he's doing now to like giving Vivaldi like part of a, right, right. like part of a, like he, co- he like, he ghost wrote some great music and that's sort of the, the implication is that like vampires have ghost written. Yeah. Um, cause, uh, John Hurt's character is a uh, Christopher Marlowe. Um, and his whole kind of subplot is that, um, he ghost wrote a lot of Shakespeare's work, which is actually a, a theory in the literary community. Um, but that that's sort of an ongoing thing where he's very he's very kind of frustrated by it. So I think there, there's like a lot of a lot in there about like art and you know does your name need to be attached to it? And I and so in general, like all the parts I really love about this movie are just the how romantic it is when they're just driving around Detroit. Yeah. And it's just like, look at this place. This used this was Jack White's house and they get yeah. all excited. And it's like, oh look, the, this theater used to be this. And it's, you know, it's a little melancholy, but it's it's just like two geniuses madly in love with each other and in love with their passions and sharing their passions with mm-hmm. each other. Like all that stuff's really great and it's and it it turns the whole vampire thing into a really perfect metaphor for like, oh, you find this person and you're such an like ecstatic love that like just the whole rest of the world seems to fade away. We're in 
this case, they're actually literally reclusive. Yeah, that's kind of what I got out of it, was that it's it's looking at, at characters who have nothing but time who aren't really changing, and sort of how do they deal with that, and how can they like take all this time and kind of funnel it into their passions. It's very existential, um, which I think is something that kind of removes it from other vampire movies, because I, I mean, one of the reasons that I went into this very excited was because I was like, oh, it's Jim Jarmusch is going to be a completely different take on this genre. It's not really, um, that's really the only thing that separates it uh, from other kind of things like, uh, like I don't know, like True Blood or Buffy. Um, but even even when he is uh, kind of dipping his toe into these cliches, I think he does a really good job. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. My, my big problem with the movie is that it has so many subplots and characters that I just don't give a shit about. Like, if it could just be these vampires wandering around for two hours, like, I would have loved that. Yeah. Because those scenes are all great. But, like, then there's, like, a subplot with her sister, who's maybe not her sister, and, like, basically that whole sequence is just, she's irritating, and then she fucks up, and then they get a, they get mad, and then that's it. There's no really huge consequences. And it's, like, there's a whole subplot with where Adam gets his blood. Like, he has a connect at the hospital, but that mm-hmm. doesn't go anywhere. That's just sort of like it. Like those scenes take forever, but there there are only two of them, and it doesn't go anywhere. And I didn't really care about John Hurt's character. Like it didn't. It seemed to have a lot of digressions, and I wish it would have just it, been. Yeah, what it, it was. was kind of like the night in a life of a vampire. It was. It was. But it was several. Right. Um, Is there a scene where the vampires order a pizza? No, they drink blood. They can't eat food. Oh. They order blood. Well, they, Oh, okay. They, they do order. Blood. They make blood popsicles. It's really cute. You can um, use maybe blood on the as in place of the sauce. You never know. They'd have to also use blood in place. Look, Jim, don't you talk to me about pizza? I know okay. pizza, Jim. <laughs> I know. I know. No, I'm not challenging you on, on that. No way. You can't make a pizza out of blood. I've tried. Oh, okay. I didn't I want to see talk this about movie. It. I don't know why. I like. I I keep hearing people. Mostly Wait, you do or say, you don't? He doesn't. I, oh, nah. you don't. I, I don't know why. I just... Vampires, meh. I'm just, like, done with them. Yeah. I, mean, he, I, I, liked, you know, I liked some of Jarmusch's films, but for some reason, like, even when I saw a preview for it and people were describing it, I just kind of went, meh, maybe. I mean, we do have a Jarmusch episode next year, so obviously I'll watch it. But yeah, I just didn't what, have enthusiasm for it. I, I guess, what vampire movies have you been watching recently and that you don't want to watch anymore? Because I know there's a lot of vampire stuff generally in the culture, but I never got the impression that you were actually doing anything. Like, you were actually watching anything. No, of I'm, I'm just... Vampires and zombies aren't interesting to me right now in time. I don't know. I can, de- I can I just, definitely understand being, like, fatigued on it culturally. Maybe this movie came out, mm-hmm. like, ten years ago? Five years ago? Uh, I mean... They're just like anything else. Like, oh, I hate zombies. But what you really hate is that zombies are an excuse for a lack of creativity. And when you see a great movie that happens to have zombies in it, then all of a sudden you're okay with zombies. <laughs> you know, it's it's not zombies are just a fictional beast. Uh, and I feel kind of the same way about vampires. Like vampires being an excuse to do a take on, t- on Twilight to get that tween money. Like that's mm-hmm. irritating. But it's not vampires you're tired of. It's... You know, no, this, I mean, but if Paul Thomas Anderson did a vampire movie, I'd go see it. This is better than if Paul Thomas Anderson would have done a vampire. I can say that right now. I can't imagine <laughs> what a Paul Thomas Anderson vampire movie would be like, but it would be really fucking ponderous. What if Paul Thomas Anderson did a zombie movie? Well, I'd watch that. Yeah, I would hope so. If Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm 
Look, I'm putting this out there right now. I'm making a challenge. Here's Dear Paul open, Thomas Anderson. Dear Paul Thomas Anderson, if you do a found footage zombie movie, <laughs> I will buy one ticket. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me started on found footage after seeing Ty West's latest movie. Ugh. Can you oh, really? It? I really do can I Can like I believe it. that Ty West made a bad movie? No. Yes, I no, know you couldn't can. Couldn't imagine it. Couldn't imagine know, it. That I guy – here's the thing about Ty West. He has such a dedication to not wasting the audience's time. I can't imagine why his found footage movie would, would be would, – how that could be bad because he has such a respect for the audience. He loves tight storytelling. He makes movies that aren't total pieces of garbage. So I don't know. I don't know why you wouldn't like the new Ty West movie. That's very strange. I was sensing a little sarcasm. I couldn't tell. Hmm. I, I mean, you know me. My favorite Ty West movie is the one in VHS because it's the shortest. No. No, no, no. Yeah, no. yeah no, that's true. It's the best okay. one because it's the okay. shortest. It's boring and ponderous and it's, and it's an anticlimax and it's stupid, but at least it's only like 10 minutes. Well, the thing with The Sacrament is just a retelling of the Jonestown Massacre and with nothing new to say about it. It's just another cult movie. And after seeing something like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, or even just how we watched, you know, something like Lake Mungo that utilized the sort of uh, mockumentary uh, style of storytelling, it just was like, it paled so much in comparison. I thought the acting was bad, except from the gal from uh, Upstream Color. Oh, she's who, in it? Yeah, yeah. She's actually really good. She she gives it her all. And I just, it, it was boring. There's something about that, like, group of filmmakers and actors that I just really, like, I, as someone who really, I did enjoy Your Next quite a bit. Yeah, that was and one I of the re- better examples Was it because Ty West dies, work. like, right away? It wasn't because Ty West dies right away, but that made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... I knew that would make you happy the moment I saw it. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I didn't know that was Ty West until I went back, because I knew he was in the movie, but I didn't know what he looked like. So mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know which one he was, but, um, but like I like your next. I think Cheap Thrills. Uh, I think El Katz, the director of Cheap Thrills, is sort of in that kind of group with Ty oh, West. Is he? I wasn't aware of that. Huh. He's sort of uh, with uh, uh, Ty West and what's his what's his name, the Mumblecore guy, who's in all of these uh, movies. The the actor director. Um, who, my friend Aaron is friends with him. Oh, oh, jo- yeah, Joe Swanberg. 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 Who, who yeah, I think Joe's a terrible actor. I, yeah, I just- yeah. I well, I think he's. I think he's a he's a distracting actor. Except I think he's amazing in your next. Um, yeah, no, he's all right in your next. That's probably the only thing I can say I enjoyed him because because he's like he plays a very uh, common character archetype in your next, where he's like the asshole who you hate and you root for to die, like in the slasher movie kind of thing. But mm-hmm. most of those characters are just irritating, and I, I really despise their use in any way because it, it generally means that the filmmakers don't want you to empathize with the characters. They want you to root for the killer, and that tends to make for a boring movie. So like whenever the asshole appears in a slasher movie, I'm always like, all right, well, I know what I'm in for, and it's probably not going to be very good. But he plays the asshole so fun. Like he's so funny yeah. in it, and he's so perfect. Like he is exact equal amounts irritating and funny. To which I both am like, oh my god, I'm so mad at you, and I'm entertained by him. And I thought that was really amazing. But uh, yeah, no, that whole – there's something about that whole group of filmmakers that rubs me the wrong way. Even though they make films I like, 
I, I almost feel the same way about them as I do about like all of those sort of L.A. comedians who make this who all star in each other's adult swim shows. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like the the, the Paul Shears and the and the uh, um, like just all those people who are all on the all in each other's podcasts all the time, all on each other's adult swim shows all the time. And they're all members of the Earwolf crew. Yeah, and yeah, all, exactly. And all that. There seems to be a thing where they seem to be making all of their stuff just to make each other laugh, and that, and I kind of get the same feeling about yeah, yeah, that group of yeah, horror filmmakers. I can see that correlation. Yeah. Where like I feel like Ty West, the reason he's making a mo- his movies is not because he understands what horror audiences like. It feels like he's just trying to like do a weird thing to impress his friends or something, which is a I don't know. That's a stupid thing to say because like clearly that's not why anyone has a career is just to impress their friends. But that's just the mm-hmm. vibe I get. Mm-hmm. I'm beginning to wonder if I was on Quaaludes when I saw House of the Devil, maybe or something. Like I, I would, I would I'm love run- to do a, a Ty I'm, West episode to well, finally. Of course, because once we did a Ty West episode and I fucking ripped into him, that'd be it. His career would be over. It'd be a career-ending <laughs> episode. Of course, he would hear it and then just stop. He, he would, would hear it. Every one of his fans who ever he would hear it and then he would tweet it and he'd said, "If you're a fan of me, listen to this because you're incorrect." And he goes, I'm stepping down. I'm going to be doing humanitarian work in South America. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, yeah. It, 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 this has There's a happy so, ending. Yeah. Oh, I like this. That would be yeah, great. Yeah. Even I if thought he's maybe just, he'd be really depressed and go become a janitor and just give up. No, no. Really. He's going to be really depressed and do humanitarian work in South America. Wow. Like, wow. he's mostly just going to be, like, lifting boxes around. Because let's be honest, he's not, he's not a smart guy. But <laughs> look, you've seen his films. Oh, you haven't. But Jim has. <laughs> Yes, and I still I think I liked House of the Devil. Now I'm beginning to question it after Sacrament, because it it was like okay, now I understand why Patrick feels this way after seeing this. Plus, I watched a documentary. Um, I think it was a PBS documentary on the Jonestown massacre right after it, and it freaked me out, and it really got under my skin. And you learned about the psychology of these people, and, and you learned lot. about how the federal government murdered them. Uh huh. <laughs> that's a more part of the story that always freaks me out more or less yep um but it's just and the, the sacrament was just like let's just retell it through found footage do point of view shots of people running and i mean it was i didn't understand why he chose to film it that way and why it it really like it just pales in comparison to so many other movies that tackle this kind of subject matter much better and much more effectively. All right, tell tell me this: is it better or worse than Red State? Slightly better, but okay. not my much. Wow. Okay, so that's it's down there. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, at least Red State had Michael Parks. Yeah, that's the only thing I can say that had going for it. I don't want to dedicate my what we watch segment to a Ty West discussion. It. I can't do it. I don't want don't do to. It. Don't. I want to talk about Apocalypse Now. You should. You should talk about Apocalypse Now. More like Apocalypse Wow. Am I right, <laughs> guys? Am I right? I, I mean, I think, I think that pun alone speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't see why you have to go on after that. Well, it's funny because I have an interesting history with this movie. Um, you, you were know, in Vietnam. I, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I forget uh, how old you are sometimes. I know. Um... This was my dad's favorite movie, and I have vivid memories of him just, like, blasting Ride of the Valkyries. Or, like, you know, when we first got a beta player, he hooked up the uh, stereo speakers just so he can, you know, watch the Apocalypse Now invasion scene. 
uh, you know, full volume. And I like I watched this at a very young age. Didn't get it. Like I was, I didn't understand why he thought this was one of the greatest movies of all time. And I watched it in my twenties and liked it a lot more. Now that I'm going through various existential crises, I understand. I identify I'm, with the movie. But I'm I mean, sorry it, to hear that. No, I mean like on and off, not not consistently, <laughs> and cer- certainly not now. I just mean like I understand the idea of using Vietnam as a metaphor because I I actually saw like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, other Vietnam movies, even stuff like Hamburger Hill, um, just all sorts of movies before seeing Apocalypse Now. And maybe its themes were just too heavy for me to process when I was younger. Um, It's just, it, it takes balls to really like take this work of literature and implement what the Vietnam War did to America mentally. And I think that's and the fact that you watch the documentary Heart of Darkness and you see what Francis Ford Coppola went through, what everybody went through, like they basically went through their own state of madness while filming it, and it seemed like to reflect in the movie. And it's just crazy how, I mean, it's no secret that a good portion of you know veterans who made it back were obviously um, touched by the darkness of it all and. You know, mm-hmm. their souls were just twisted from the awful reality they had to face, and it it it's it's kind of strange to know what the cast and crew went through to make something like this, and in and in terms of being incredibly um, profound, I think one of the examples I would I would point out is the way this film uses music. Like I hate the Doors, but. The book ending this movie with that song to like you know um, emphasize the madness that you know Martin Sheen is experiencing both at the beginning at the end at the end in different contexts um, and then of course the right of the Valkyries moment but it's, the score for this is very horror like seventies horror movie esque with like just some weird drones and weird tones and things like what I, year did the, what year did this movie come out. 76 I think no this was in this was 80s right no I think it was late 70s yeah I think it made 79 at the at the late at the earliest hmm 79 is when it came okay out. yeah okay um yeah so yeah I, I watched so you told me that you'd be talking about this so I tried watching it today, but I only have the Redux version, and that version's way too long. And yeah, it has you know, the French plantation sequence and stuff. Yeah, uh, all that. There's, it's just it's it just takes way too long to get to it, and there's just a lot of diversions, which are sort of interesting in their own right, but they definitely hurt the mo- the original version is definitely the way to go. But uh, yeah, I noticed that that score too. That's why I guess that's part of why I assume this was like eighty two or something was because it had that early kind of electronic score. But, I mean, it has iconic moments that everybody knows, including probably one of the best Robert Duvall performances of all time. Uh, and, and so quotable. Uh, have you have you watched the Milius documentary yet? Because I've been thinking about doing that. I don't no, know I a whole lot about I don't know a whole lot about the guy. But, obviously, he's written some of the best screenplays of all time. Um... And, you know, he's, I mean, Francis Ford Coppola in particular, what he brought to this movie 
um, to reflect what he was experiencing, what uh, you know America was experiencing, and also citing something like Heart of Darkness, which is a book I read uh, a long time ago too, and was re- really affected by. Um, and I just I, I feel like I got it more, like I understood the the sort of um, postures or what's the word. Um, preachiness i guess a little bit more of what kurtz was trying to convey because when i was younger i just thought it was kind of you know pretentious and not very like it just felt like a completely different movie suddenly and you know when dennis hopper shows up who apparently like he didn't even have a screenplay or knew what his dialogue was that he just kind of all made it up on the spot which is interesting um but i mean there's just this weird mania going on throughout this movie and it becomes kind of meditative and obviously in a very dark way with the last act. Um, but you know, things like, you know, interspersing the, um, murder of Colonel Kurtz with, you know, the slaughtering of a cow, you know, stuff like that really resonated with me more watching it now and realizing, you know, how soldiers become these animals and they couldn't grapple with the, inhumanity they that was required of them at the time and the things they had to face and endure but it's also really about facing the abyss and what it does to you um you know the fact that you know marlon brando's last lines are echoed at the end just saying the horror the horror i it is kind of a horror movie in a way i mean not in the traditional genre sense but what these characters experience is horrific the war itself was horrific what the filmmakers and everybody practically who went and you know sacrificed so much of themselves to make this movie i mean you watch heart of darkness and you realize this kind of intense drama they all went through while making the movie and it's interesting too you know ebert himself said this was one of the 10 greatest films of all time and it's taken me a very long time a very sort of troubled relationship with watching the movie and not quite getting it um, but now I do entirely. And so I'm, I'm a little curious because while I was watching it, and I should say I pretty much saw I got halfway through the whole French plantation thing in the Redux, and then I had to turn it off because it was just it, it totally lost my interest, and I had to watch some other movies. I've never actually seen the the Redux. And yeah, it's so that that's before they get to Kurtz, but it's only slightly before they get to Kurtz. Um, but so one of the things I was actually looking for this time around having now seen Hearts of Darkness, because I haven't seen this movie since I was in high school, um, was trying to find some evidence of just like what Coppola went through on screen. And I I found I couldn't really see it. Like, okay, so like to give a, a different example, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that was a nightmare shoot. And I, to me, that's, that's all on screen where like, during the dinner scene when she's screaming, like there's a close up of her eye and you can see blood vessels have been broken in her eye. There's like when she's running through the bushes and stuff, like there's just cuts all over her that are just clearly she got cut while she was filming the movie. Like there's a lot of stuff that just feels like that when they when the guy stumbles into that room that's full of bones and the and the soundtrack goes crazy, you can just almost smell it. But for this, I mean, I th- I I think Apocalypse Now is an amazing movie, but it almost it feels it doesn't feel like a movie that barely got made. It feels like a very sure of itself accomplished film and controlled. So, yeah. yeah. Was there any, was there that. any moment where you saw 
what Francis Ford Coppola went through on screen? Like, was there a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, that's because they went crazy trying to make this movie? Uh, I mean, I, I do think the way this movie ends, it's it has this hallucinatory feel to it in a way, especially, you know, once we get the Doors song again and the way the film is cutting and, you know, the the choice to sort of bring Martin Sheen's face you know, fading in to the to the frame, and like there's just this. I mean, the last. I think that that was the thing I I felt about the last half hour or so when I first saw it. I thought it was almost kind of too artsy, too showy, too like um, trying to make a point in a very direct way that I didn't find interesting. And having these long monologues from Marlon Brando talking about what he's experienced and why he is the way he is. It just felt too pointed almost in a way that's like talking down to the audience. Like, let me explain to you why everything is the way it is. And let me explain to you why I am the way I am. Like I, I had that first impression with it, but in order to sort of just, you know, reflect on everything that happened collectively, and, you know, obviously there's many events in history, and so I think that's why, like, even if you read recent essays on Apocalypse Now, recently, like, people cite all sorts of events that sort of... that This, this movie doesn't have to be about Vietnam. It's about the existential terror that people feel when faced with any sort of inhumanity. And, I mean, I think Francis Ford Coppola, you're right. I do... Th- I'm, I'm, I'm pretty astonished by how controlled the, f- the film plays out and it, it doesn't feel too frantic or chaotic it's just interesting knowing i mean even things like well martin sheen had a heart attack and like all these things that they went through in terms of how the the settings of filming something like that did to them uh the circumstances and th- i think heart of darkness is one of the best making of you know films of all time just to see what it takes to make something like this and I mean, obviously, Orson Welles tried to do his own adaptation before Citizen Kane, but I, obviously it wasn't the right time. But yeah, there's a lot to, to ponder with a movie like this to where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to sit down and write about how I feel about this movie in many different ways. Uh, yeah, I, I almost, uh, watching it this time, um, I almost felt this is almost a dark flip side to M.A.S.H., obviously obviously it being a dark flip side in that it's about war and it's not a comedy but more specifically it's about at least mostly for the first half of it i'd say um but i'd say for most of it actually it's about sort of the the reaction a human being has to war and to the horrors of war, and I mean the way the the way that Mash works is it's these surgeons who see who see men day in and day out who have been crippled or or killed, you know, by by wounds sustained in war, and then the way that they deal with it is just sort of by acting out and rebelling against their superiors and stuff, and becoming these kind of countercultural figures, um, and and, and uh, yeah. and and obviously Mash is about you know obviously Mash even though it takes place during the Korean War, it's about the Vietnam, you know, um, it was just, it was too in the thick of it for, for Fox to make a movie about Vietnam in that time. But, um, but the thing about, uh, 
uh, and then but the same thing is true of apocalypse now where it's these men who see this horror day in and day out and then they compartmentalize and one of the reasons uh robert duvall is such a fascinating character is he isn't heartless he isn't someone who doesn't give a shit about anything like and that's how he's dealing with it is just by just assuming oh if you're in you're inhuman so so and that's how i have to justify to myself all the horrible acts i commit he is self-aware he's (laughs) self-aware to a point where like um at a certain point there's a Viet Cong who's wounded and he's holding his guts in with his hat and and the uh the Viet the I honestly don't know the details of the Vietnam War to be honest so I don't know if it's South Vietnam South Vietnam or North Vietnam or what was working with America at the time but the troop that this Vietnamese troop that's working soldier that's working with America is yelling at him and just wants to kill him right there but Robert Duvall gives him his canteen and says, any man who can fight while holding his guts in can drink from my canteen any day. And then there's a whole section where he's, he stops talking about surfing long enough to help uh, a woman whose child has been wounded get her child to the hospital and like he makes sure that she goes along with him and everything. Like there's weird moments of humanity that – where you can't just write him off as an inhuman monster. But he's still clearly doing all these monstrous things and it's so funny how it's – yeah, it's just <laughs> the the napalm ruining ruining the conditions for perfect surfing is a perfect metaphor for yeah, yeah no totally. I I just I'm for still that reality like, intruding there's, in. There's bombs dropping all around him, but he pays no mind. Like, oh, that's that's where I'm at. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, most people would be like, whoa, or they would react in some way, but he doesn't even acknowledge them half the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think. You know uh, the John Milius, the the line I love the smell of napalm in the morning was just an, like, almost like an afterthought. It's something he didn't even think about. It just came out of him. And uh, I mean, that's just that whole speech is in, is like incredibly moving, but not preachy and very succinct. And there's there's really interesting set pieces throughout this movie. Um, where it showcases inhumanity and ways people try to, com- like you said, com- car- ah, compartmentalize. Um, and then there's a lot of moments where masks are used at certain points to kind of symbolize the anti-self. Like the, everybody has to basically become a new version of themselves in order to deal with what they're doing. And it, it requires almost a symbolic killing of the old self. I mean, it starts off the movie with Martin Sheen breaking a mirror, you know, and having a a meltdown because of all the things he's gone through. And now he's about to go through more. And in a way, the ending, you know, kind of makes sense. The, the idea of the destruction of self, even if a part of him can kind of see his, you know, uh, his, his fragmented version of himself in Kurtz. Like there's probably a part of him that, understands why he is the way he is why um you know he's decided to become this recluse and you know embrace meditation and just sort of think about where we all are uh but well he it, says as much in the, yeah. in the voiceover there is voiceover in the original that, right yo yeah there's there's okay. tons of voiceover but it it, it just fits it fits so well, whereas like a lot well, of movies, just, I kind of find that as a you know to be a crutch well I mean he's just a character that he would not. Number one, he has to keep his actual – like just logistically he has to keep his mission a secret from all the other men on the boat. And number two, he's just not a character who would confide in someone else. 
So uh-huh. it, it doesn't feel like a, a you know a crutch because it's not the sort of information that you can get across in dialogue, right? Right. And and it's yeah, but it's um no, it's really it's funny that the movie starts and the way I uh, always remembered it was that it starts with him dealing with what he has done and getting super drunk and sort of wrecking himself in the hotel room he's in or whatever I don't know if it's a hotel room or what but it, the room he's in. Um, yeah, he's in Saigon in a hotel room. Right? Uh, yeah, I always thought I always remembered that as being a flash forward, and then it would flash back, and then you would see what led him to that point. But no, that's he's on like he's a man on the edge before the movie even starts, right? <laughs> Which is the great thing about this movie is it, it's not about like it's not about like an innocent soldier being perverted. It's about someone who's already on the edge, just being pushed right off, right off that cliff. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many things about this movie that work in a way that no other film did before this. And boy, when we do a Francis Ford Coppola episode, it's going to be so much. That's going to be be a two-parter. We're We're going to be exhausted. When we do do a Francis Ford Coppola episode, we're going to be watching a lot of middling movies from the 80s. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be watching a lot of movies from the 80s and being like, well, it wasn't bad. I mean, it's not the conversation, but it's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, talk like, about a run. What a yeah, run in the 70s. Good sure. God. For sure. And also, God bless him for fucking putting all that money into this movie. Because this movie is – the special effects and everything are spectacular. And and a movie this idiosyncratic and dark um, and not uh, sort of mainstream audience friendly. I can never see a movie with this kind of budget being made today ever. Yeah. Like, even if it was explicitly made, even if a studio thought to themselves, if we make a movie that tackles this issue, we're going to, you know, it will have a big Oscar chances. So we're going to throw money into it. So it's a big Oscar contender and all that. Like, even that would not, it would not be as weird and as uh, horrifying as it is. And really quickly, I've been watching one of the funniest shows of all time, Mr. Ed. Which is so funny. Which is funny shows all time. Yeah. Which is a show I know that would would cause you to uh, go mad. I enjoy it. it. Oh, good. (laughs) I know how beautiful horses are. Is that that what Mr. Ed's about? Winning beauty contests? Or is Mr. Ed about (laughs) the inherent horror in imagining that a horse could have human feelings because horses are actually horrible? It's about the transcendent beats. beauty of a horse, God's most yeah. majestic creature, deigning, humbling itself to communicate with human beings. Right. Please go on, Jim. I'm very interested. You summed it up beautifully. That Thank was great. You. Yeah. Do you really? Do you, what is funny about Mr. Ed, other than the fact they put peanut butter in a horse's mouth and filmed it? <laughs> or maybe, if you think about the entire series of Mr. Ed, they probably got a good like 200 hours of footage of a horse <laughs> chewing peanut butter <laughs> and somewhere in the archives i don't know if that was cbs or nbc or what but somewhere in someone's archives there's 200 hours of film of just a horse chewing peanut butter and but that that's he- funny but I don't, <laughs> what's, what's funny about the show hilarious. <laughs> mr ed's a snarky motherfucker like he's really uh, like he comments on things in a kind of a really cynical way at times and his observations on things are not always sunny and i kind of like that about him 
Like he he tells it like it is. There's know? no God, Wilbur. <laughs> <laughs> He's had moments that come close to that. Everyone you it's love will all- die and be forgotten. It's not all wacky puns. I mean, there's plenty of those, but they're smarter than most of the ones that come out of my mouth. Is Mr. Ed on Netflix? Uh, no. Okay, so I... Why did you decide to watch it? Because my roommate Heather recommended it, and she's oh, like, okay. you've never seen Mr. Ed? And I'm like, no. It's like, oh my god, we're watching it now. I mean, that's, that's usually how we wind up on these weird TV show kicks. Just like, oh my god, oh, you've never seen that? And then we just like binge on it for weeks on end. But yeah, so I, I think it's t- great. Give me, tell me, don't you don't even have to remember the name of the episode. I don't even know if they named episodes back then. Tell me one episode of Mr. Ed that stands out for you. Like if I was going to watch one episode of Mr. Ed to know what you're talking about. Um, like gosh, just tell what, me what the premise, been, premise of a good episode of Mr. Ed. There's been a couple of them that I've been really. Uh, <laughs> Affected by for sure. I think um, affected. So, Mister Ed has moved you to tears. This horse chewing peanut butter. Um, no, 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 not necessarily. I mean, the, the one where he uh, loses the ability to talk and he gets uh, a speech therapist to come see him and like, the, like just his weird turns of <laughs> phrase are true, hilarious. It? Yeah, it's totally true. <laughs> I don't know. They had speech therapists back then. I thought yeah. they just threw you in a well. You had a stutter. <laughs> I didn't know they. No, they just gave you, a, you know, um, ECT for everything. Wait, wait, back so, then. so it's not. It's not like he just talks to the one guy. It's sort of everyone knows that he's a talking horse. Where they oh, can no, bring no, in no. a speech therapist well, and Mister Mister Ed winds up uh, slyly trying. I mean, he 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 basically gets put um, in the barn and. The, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but the speech therapist is sitting in the barn but doesn't see him. You know, the the, the barn doors are closed, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so he's <laughs> Wilbur's like telling him the speech therapist that oh, Miss, um, oh, how does he say it? I can't remember. But basically, he's saying like oh, this is my cousin or whoever who has a speech yeah, yeah, problem, yeah. and you no, have to it, treat yeah, them, but you exactly can't see it. them because he's so shy and he doesn't. <laughs> I ate some bad hay. Like just ridiculous lines that. Oh my god! I don't know. The, it, it, is everything he, about like the Proto show works. Garfield? Does he hate Mondays? Does he? Hate, yeah. yeah. What? There's nothing That's wrong relatable. with Garfield. Uh, no, there's nothing wrong with Garfield. <laughs> there's a couple things wrong with Garfield. Um. Okay. You sounded so like Adam Carolla just then. I really liked, <laughs> I liked how your intonation went there. I you can't listen to a hundred hours of Love Line growing up without having a little yeah. and then put on my headphones and speak into a microphone. That's sounding a little bit like Adam Carolla. But so you like? Is there any other Nick at Night shows I should be on the lookout for? How is that old Dennis the Menace show where the Dennis oh, I love Dennis like he was the Menace. Seventeen year old. It was. I thought it was really well written when I saw it. Well, I mean, I saw it when I was a kid. So who knows what I think of it now? But. But what? But uh, even back then, when you were a kid, you your thought your thought process was Dennis the Menace. That's a really well written show. Yeah, that's clever. Car Fifty Four. Where are you? Is another really good one with Fred Gwynn, who was in man a lot of TV shows. But yeah, we talked about that on our our favorite epi- our favorite movies episode. We did. I don't remember that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and I did an impression of Fred Gwynn. Oh um, yeah, the, I, which I love. In Pet Cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> in Pet. Fred Gwynn in Pet Cemetery, but in Car 54. 
saying right. a lot of, and, a lot of and, bad history with card 54. You don't want to find card 54. The guy, the guy name was uh, the other guy's name was Tootie, and he would go ooh 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 like a monkey I think you're all thinking the about time. I think you're thinking about Welcome Back Cotter. Oh. No, I don't think That's so. That's the guy. Oh, 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 Mr. Carter. <laughs> uh, do you have any other old... Mr. Carter. I'm going to watch a single episode of Mr. Ed and if it doesn't make me like if I don't find it funny, I'm going to come to Michigan. I'm going to kill you in your sleep. You, you have bust to be shitting me. You have to tell you. I'm, gonna- I don't, I'm not going to jerk it to Mr. Ed. I don't care how much peanut butter that horse is chewing. <laughs> I, I would be amazed if you made it through the whole episode since I know you're uh, anti-horse. I am anti-horse, but I mean any horse that's trying to make himself more like a man is trying to better himself. I can respect that. Yeah. That's offensive. I'm offended. I know. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could real quick talk about Don Hertzfeld. Oh man! Speaking I watched, of existential crisis, and yeah, I watched all of his uh, movies this past oh. week. Are uh, you okay? Yeah, <laughs> more or less. Okay. I'm okay until I start de- developing like signs of schizophrenia. Then I'm immediately going to kill myself because Jesus Christ. So yeah, uh, I had seen most of his films before. Um, Don Hertzfeld, if you don't know, he's an animator. Um, very simple, black and white, uh, often stick figure animations. Um, absurd sense of humor, but very dark. Uh, he Throughout his career, he got a little darker and he got a little more uh, existential and he got a little more serious and less comedic. But he's probably best known for the, for the film Rejected, uh, <laughs> the premise, the, which was a very – which was – it was almost it was like a viral video in a time where that wasn't a thing. Yeah, actually, um, when Patrick, when you mentioned that uh, you were watching uh, Don Hertzfeld movies, it immediately uh, brought me back to like a, a decade ago in college, pre YouTube, when Rejected was going around my dorm, and I think there was a semester where like you couldn't you like you could walk into like pretty much any room in the dorm, yell "My anus is bleeding," and everyone would go, "Yeah." <laughs> like, and, and and this was like yeah like before YouTube so so you know <laughs> because it's in just, just the watch it Jim watch rejected <laughs> it's like ten minutes um yeah. my anus is bleeding Yay! <laughs> it's, it's still so satisfying but no it was it was crazy it was like it was like you you'd met an old friend from from my college years yeah. It was, it was, yeah. But yeah, because and yeah, so I think he's best known for that, and a lot of people think he just did a funny web video at some point and didn't know he's like a serious filmmaker. Um, and even back in the days of Rejected, that like that film that has kind of a crazy apocalyptic ending that is really impressive on a technical side. Um, but of course, that technical aspect is just blown out times a million in uh, "It's Such a Beautiful Day." Where it's really hard to describe because there is no animated film like this other than maybe the film he did before it, um, The Meaning of Life, which uses some of the same techniques but to way less good effect. But basically, it's about a stick figure drawing who has a tumor in his head um, that is causing some kind of schizophrenia. That, But because it's a very subjective film that's all from his perspective, you sort of have to assume all this. Like you – you sort of have to pick up context clues and figure out what's going on, um, even though it has sort of an it has an omniscient uh, narrator. But um, later in the film, uh, the film itself, by the way, is three short films he made connected about the same character 
all connected. So it's in, so it's a triptych sort of in three chapters. And as you get later in chapters, it sort of becomes apparent that his that this omniscient narrator is actually the way he's contextualizing his own life. Um, and isn't omniscient at all. And so, for example, it has that typical Don Hirschfeld thing. If you ever seen, and by the way, except for this film I'm talking about right now. All of his movies are on YouTube. So if you go to IMDb, look up Don Hertzfeld, look up all of his movies, then open YouTube and just start watching them. I, you can watch every single movie he ever made within a span of about like three hours. Um, at No, mo- less. It would be like two hours So because he mostly made very short um, films. But anyway, uh, it's a typical Don Hertzfeld thing where it's stick figures. It's black and white. He doesn't illustrate backgrounds. Um, but there's a lot of – other weird effects um, where sort of images appear in all corners of the screen, almost like a comic panel sort of a thing, except instead of being you know separated by hard lines and boxes, they're just sort of images that appear in sort of beams of light almost. Um, and some of these are, you know, they'll show someone's memories or they'll show what someone's thinking, but then sometimes they'll just be purely expressive. Um, and then of course, later when he's having, sort of his uh, sort of schizophrenic episodes and things are getting too intense that all of these things are turned up full volume and there's a ton of things going on at once and it's super anxious anxiety producing and it's about this person going through these mental these challenges and it's about his family's history of mental illness um, and about him trying to deal with it once again, about someone dealing with mental illness but not being able to be subjective about it. Surprise, surprise, Patrick Rapole likes it. <laughs> um, um, but and uh, in the last chapter, it turns into something uh, really interesting, which is it, it becomes more about sort of how he and the way he deals with life um, and the way he's sort of in denial about his condition – becomes uh, sort of a, a metaphor for not just like existential crisis, but sort of like, oh, if you if you had a mental illness, you could actually enjoy life the way that you wish you could. <laughs> like the way where there's like a moment, there's this like the heartbreaking moment that the that the film's named after. It's such a lovely day. Is he gets home from the hospital finally, um, and he steps out of his apartment. And he realizes, oh, it's so beautiful out. I think I'll take a walk. And he goes around the block and he notices something and he notices something else and he's um, admiring it for all that it is. And he gets back to the front of his house and then there's a cut and it – there's a cut to black real quick and it comes back and it plays the exact same thing again. And it's clear that he's not remembering that he has been doing this um, and it's basically this person who's mad wandering around their block again and again muttering to themselves – like that's the way any outside observer would see it. But <laughs> what he's actually doing is appreciating the world in the way that, you know, you kind of wish you could where you would see a flower and you would see or, or a sunset or something like that. And and you would say, oh, how beautiful. And then it gets more and more intense as his sort of denial of death gets greater. And and it ends in this amazing passage uh, sort of about this fantasy he has where he's immortal Um and it is heartbreaking. It's there's a Scott uh, in the uh, uh, Scott McCloud book, Understanding Comics. Um, 
he talks about how things actually are more like people don't need much to empathize with something. So like you don't need to draw a super detailed drawing of a human in order for someone to go, oh, that's a human and then empathize with it. If you draw a picture of – if you draw a picture of just a little squiggle but it has two eyeballs, someone will go, oh, look at that little squiggle. Look at him go. And <laughs> they'll relate to that squiggle. Uh, it doesn't have to have a sh- any shape or anything. Like you can just draw weird amoeba shapes. As long as you put two little eyeballs on it that are somewhat expressive, they'll be able to relate to them. Mm-hmm. And Don Hertzfeld's movies prove this you know, prove oh, this yeah. a thousand times because his movies are so – like because his – because the characters are just stick figures. They're just ovals for a body, a circle for a head, and then lines for the uh, hands and the and the legs. Yeah, like I, I haven't seen um, the movie that you're talking about, but he did this short, uh, Lily and Jim. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just two stick figures and they're going on a date, but it just so perfectly captures that awkwardness of trying to meet people and trying to make a connection and like how uncomfortable that can be and like how it's so difficult to like have real honest moments with with people especially when you're putting like your pressure this pressure on yourself to have a good first date it's or and like, in the case of that movie when you're and introverted stick figures yeah 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 oh it's i'm that i'm honest i think i i'm not a big fan of that movie as you are but like it's that's definitely true and so um there's that and the and so that movie's insane and it's amazing and it's Honestly, it might be one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life. Jim, you you watched that a while back. Oh my god! Like, I I, I forgot what my number one movie was that year, but I don't know. Like, I hadn't cried that hard at anything all year. That I mean, that was just phenomenal. And <laughs> oddly enough, he uses a, a Wagner song, a, a Wagner piece, right? Just like Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's it's beautiful, it's surreal, and the weird sort of kind of crazy build up to this this strange soundscape was like almost a racerhead esque. You know, like the sound design really got to me because I oh watched this with the headphones on, and I was like, "Oh my god, yeah, am I dreaming sound, this thing?" It's so the sound weird. design in this movie is insane. It's amazing, and it's all done without computers. Um, which, when you hear me describe it, doesn't sound that impressive because it's all stick figures and stuff. But it's one of those things where things are done so simply and so obviously without computers that you actually – it's actually harder to figure out how they did it and it ends up impressing you more. It's almost the same way like with the Michelle Gondry music video where like you see something happen and you can't quite figure out how he did it and you can't just assume that it was computers because it's Michelle Gondry. <laughs> and yeah. So this movie was made without computers and – it's amazing. So if you want to have a really profound sort of existential experience um, that is equally uh, devastating and heartwarming and because it is – it's bittersweet and it's super bitter. But I think it is very, very sweet as well. Um, I don't think it's it's just about crushing your soul. There is a lot of sort of tarnished optimism in there. But um, So if you want to watch that, that's on Vimeo. If you just search for "It's such a lovely day," um, uh, you can get you can rent that on Vimeo, which is what I did. But all of his other movies are on YouTube, and his early movies are fucking funny. Because uh, the other thing he's the master of is is timing. If you have you seen Billy's oh, Balloon? <laughs> no. <laughs> Billy's Balloon is basically it feels like a film student sat in a film class and watched. Have you seen the French film The Red Balloon? Not yet. I'm, it's on my list. Okay, well, it's on YouTube as well. 
So go ahead and watch The Red Balloon. It's a very I, – I like the short quite a bit. It's a it's like a 20-minute film or whatever about a boy and he has like a – it's almost a pet or slash friend, which is a balloon. And so it's it's just this round red balloon and it has no expression. But just in its movement, it's super expressive and it has a lot of personality. Um, and it's sort of this you know uh, magical realism and it's – it's a cute, heartwarming story about a little boy and his little balloon and how they're best friends. It's French, right? It's very of French. It's French. Yeah. So Billy's balloon feels like someone watched that movie and fucking hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of like a plucky little French boy, it's the dumbest fucking kid you've ever seen in his life who – like Hertzfeld is the master of drawing like simple faces that are – but yeah. are so expressive. So like you see this kid's eyes and they're like slightly crossed in a way that just implies he has no brain activity whatsoever. And it is just a movie about this balloon abusing him. Oh, wow. And it is. That sounds so, amazing. It's like five minutes long or whatever, but the t- it has the best, some of the best comedic timing I've ever seen in any movie, let alone an animated movie. And anyone who's ever animated it, I know you've done a lot of filmmaking, Jim. I don't know if you've ever animated anything. No. Timing? Now there's apps for that, so who knows? Maybe I'll give it a try. <laughs> Getting timing right in animation is fucking hard um, because you're drawing these things individually, so you don't have a good chance. You don't have a good sense of how it will animate together. Um, I remember when I was in my animation class, we were given stopwatches, and basically we would have to. What they told us to do was act out what you're doing and figure out exactly how many seconds. Each action will take in hmm. the thing because that's – and then by then you can do 24 frames a second and then – or 12 mm-hmm. – actually, we were doing 12 frames a second because 24 frames would be very sophisticated for animation. But so we're doing 12 frames a second and then, and then figure – time out how many frames it should take. And then from there, you figure out where to the, want the first frame of that sequence and the last frame to be. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you do the middle. And then like timing is so hard and the comedic timing of Billy's Balloon is amazing and – I hurt myself laughing the first time I saw it, and I hurt myself laughing the second time I saw it, and I watched it like three times, and I was just dying. So Billy's Balloon is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Rejected is really, really funny. Uh, what was that genre? Is that the name of that movie he did? Oh, um, maybe. Hold on. I'm going to look it up real quick. But he did a – so most of the movies he did, um, he did in uh, he did in film school. Um. And uh, but 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 yeah, genre. What what's that? I think he has a DVD where you can check out all his short films. Yeah, he has two that, DVDs. But I'm okay. just saying, if if a listener wants to watch these movies, they can. It's on YouTube. Oh, okay. I do want to pick these up though. So yeah, I'm willing to, I, I want to give this guy some money so he can keep working. Sure. Well, I mean, in that case, that's why I paid for. It. It's such a beautiful day. Um. Or yeah, it's such a beautiful day. But um. So yeah, genre is really funny. It's a little – it's not quite as perfect as Rejected or Billy's Balloon, but it's really good. And then A La Mora, which was his first, I don't like very much because it's weird and sexist. Because uh, <laughs> he, he was like a – you know, he's, it's, a, it's just about like, mm, I want to talk to women, but they're all bitches. No one likes me. And it's like clearly the work of someone who was just like a romantically unsuccessful 19-year-old. Yeah. Sort of. MRA, the animation. Yeah, yeah. It's um, like a men's right activist short. <laughs> the timing's great, though. Again, yeah, yeah. Like, again. really, that, that's, a, that's um, where he really shines. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So uh, if, you wanna, if you're going to watch 
two movies by him and not spend any money, watch Billy's Balloon and Rejected. And then uh, if you want to cry your eyes out, like I did and like Jim did, watch It's Such a Beautiful Day. The guy next to him at the bus stop had a head of a cow. Like, there's just so weird and random things that happen throughout his sort of psychosis and his, like, memory problems and just the disconnection from reality that he experiences is funny and tragic. Well, the thing – you say random, but the thing about it is – like, I would say a lot of the little moments in uh, Rejected are sort of just about randomness, and they're just about, here's something that has no meaning at all. <laughs> and fleas, what, what's, what's the part? Like, fleas shoot from my nipples. Oh, yeah. What? This <laughs> <laughs> weird monster so shoots. great. This monster shoots fleas from his nipples and attacks all these school children or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the end of Rejected, where it's just like, and then he just gave up. And yeah, yeah. So, like, rains. some of that stuff is, like, super random or, like, or, like, the little cotton ball creatures who are like, my anus is bleeding. <laughs> like, that sort of stuff. Um, wow. I just, I don't want to start quoting it because... I'll just I'll just be here all night going Tuesday's coming. I live in a giant bucket. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like that stuff is random, but the thing about it, it's such a beautiful day is things start off feeling like random or non sequiturs, but they become common hallucinations as the film goes on. And then, for example, he had a dream where he grew a giant fish head on top of his head. Like that's just sort of like oh, what a wacky random dream thing to happen. But then it keeps returning to his nightmares about fish heads growing out of his head or about the nightmares of people's crotches touching produce at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Like those become, those take on lives of their own as his schizophrenia worsens. And then suddenly it's, Oh, the fact that it was a fish head growing out of his head isn't just random. That's a good metaphor for how he feels when his head is hurting the way it does. And he feels out of control and he feels like there's this other personality in him that he can't control. Like it's, I would say it, it's such a beautiful day is not random pointedly not random in the way that something like rejected is um but you are right it's like it's very odd so it all, it starts off before it gets super serious like it starts off almost feeling like oh that's just, this is funny and then it yeah. quickly gets not funny um, i never i never knew you took an animation class now i know why you're so animated yeah that's what they taught us they mm. taught us how to be cartoon characters like jim carrey in the mask mhm yeah mhm you know, you talked a lot about dreams, Patrick. I'm so animated. Whoa, you sounded like the I have for a so that was much weird. Energy. Hmm. What about dreams, Jim? You talked a lot about that. You talked a lot about them, and uh, I know a director who um, is quite the fan of uh, you know analyzing them within characters on screen. Including one of my favorite. I don't know. Let him get Uh, to it. We're gonna mention. I'm sorry. It's Ty West. Oh, okay. No. No. It's it's the director of the Martin Brest. (laughs) Martin Brest. Where did that come from? Chris Columbus. Have you watched Midnight Run yet? No. Have you watched Harry Potter two yet? I have to mail that to you. You don't have to mail it to me. I'll I'll watch it. You don't okay. have to mail it to me, Jim. Well, I, I just want to know after, Hey, after, I watched the new Paranormal Activity movie. How's that? Oh God, you didn't have to mail no. that to me. No. It's Latino. <laughs> Actually, so the thing you hated about the first Paranormal Activity movie is long gone. So you might – I mean it's still stupid and it's still uh, a stupid found footage movie. So you wouldn't like it. But 
it, instead of just being video of watching people sleep, it's it's sort of the setup is these teenage boys who have a camera and do crazy things with the camera. Um, oh, and okay. So like, yeah. So it's it, it the setup. Actually, if we're going to talk about Paranormal Activity uh, Five real quick, the setup is really good um, because the character because it it's you know it takes place in L.A. It's not just like another like giant house that someone lives in. It takes place in L.A. and this apartment complex, and there are these you know plucky high schoolers who are. They just graduated from high school and they're sort of running around with this camera and it takes place in the Latino community and it's and it's all of these things that you know you never see in horror movies at all that are the and they're like really endearing characters. Um and then it gets stupid and then it gets worse and then it basically becomes Akira and then So you know how the first paranormal activity which you saw is mostly lights turning on and off while people sleep? <laughs> yeah. This one ends with cholos with automatic shotguns running around a compound blowing witches away. There are no ghosts? No, there are there's there's ghosts, but it's but it like escalates. And a chihuahua. There's ghosts and a chihuahua. The Taco Bell dog? That would be yeah, You want to call a chihuahua a Taco Bell dog, Jim, you insensitive asshole. <laughs> Chihuahuas are a proud species of dog that look like creeps. <laughs> look, I, I don't know. I don't know much about chihuahuas. I've never owned a chihuahua, but they look like they would masturbate on the subway. They have that yeah, head. That's true. So, so I think Jim was building to something. Talk, maybe he was gonna. I don't know what it was. <laughs> Our favorite <laughs> filmmaker, Todd Salons. <laughs> what director are we covering? This, this Tarantino. Um, not Sam yet. Amy. That's we're actually doing Tarantino in a, a month or a couple months. So, Craig Brewer. Um, I think we're finally covering Martin Scorsese. Woo! Oh, I sounded like Oprah for a second. That was weird. No, we're not. I lied. I'm a liar. I'm, <laughs> I'm a sorry. It's Sam liar. Peckinpah. Everybody, Sam Peckinpah. Hooray! Yay! No, actually, the director of this episode is Richard. Richard Linkletter. 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 Richard Linkletter. Dicky Link. Watch the Before Trilogy by Richard Linkletter, because you're going to get so much out of the experience of spending time with this couple than you would in any other context. Like, I I cannot say enough good things about all three of these movies almost equally. Like, I, th- I think the first one, obviously, Before Sunrise, when I first saw it, I, I, st- I still hated Ethan Hawke. And that's mostly to blame because of reality bites. Uh, I just didn't a think a terrible movie. We can all agree. Yeah, he's he's really despicable in that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, I, I went in with a little bit of baggage or, you know, some hesitation, despite being, you know, obviously a, a, a huge fan of uh, Slacker and Days and Confused. Um, and as as someone who just loves to listen to people talk and, you know, it, it indulge in some interesting conversations, this was totally up my alley and it kind of kind of shows why Kevin Smith is is so subpar in terms yeah. of, in terms of like okay i'm just going to make a movie where mostly people just talk this is light years above something like uh clerks or chasing amy in terms of being invested in you know the outcome of this relationship and how they grow and and build together slowly that instantaneous euphoria you experience when you meet somebody that you're really interested in and then when you guys click on so many things when you share a moment of listening to a record together for the first time, um, it 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 just it works on every level for me. Like I love the more and more I rewatch a lot of my favorite Richard Linklater movies, the more I go, this guy, he, he just he just does almost everything right in every way for me. Like the, yeah, and and even like recently, I just you know threw on uh, Jackie Brown in the background, and there's a scene where it, uh, it, it's in the car where the camera lingers and sort of slowly pushes in on Sam Jackson's face. And I was thinking about this with a lot of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, it, it, Tarantino just decides to let um, characters think, and we get to witness that. And I adore breathing room in a film where we get to like watch them actually uh, just contemplate to themselves. And it gives this intimacy that a lot of filmmakers would just, you know, bypass altogether. And then obviously, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson does this quite a bit in, in something like Boogie Nights during uh, the drug deal sequence where Dirk sort of stares off into the distance for this, like, excruciating period of time where you just get to watch him think and get lost in his own head. And I think Linkletter sort of uh, focuses on time and the passing of time uh, better than most filmmakers I know of anyway like I just he decides to let his characters talk and ruminize and f- uh, philosophize and postulate in all these really interesting ways that most people I think uh, in a relationship they have conversations like these and um, before sunrise at least for me it sets up what I think is one of the best trilogies one of the most romantic uh, movies I've ever seen and I, I grow to love them more and more the more I watch them, and I think they get better, too. So you, when you say you get better, you think that each one's better than the last, or they get better the more you watch them? I think they get better the more I watch them, and they get better. Uh, like, I like I really love the first one, but the second one you know gets even better, and the third one gets even better. Interesting. Hmm. Um... Yeah, it. What's interesting about these movies is how similar they are, but they are all playing very right. different games, sort of. So, like, so you, you think about most dialogue in in movies in general, it's functional. It's someone needs to say this thing so this we can be to this point in the story, and someone needs to say this thing so we can be this point in the story, and someone needs to say this thing so we know what their characters are thinking about this point in the story. Um. Before Sunrise, very early on, it ju- you just clue in that 
at no point is any of this dialogue going to be functional. At no point is there actually a narrative really going to develop. Right, it's not driven by narrative. Right. Uh, only, like, at the very end, once they... <laughs> like, the only conflict in the movie is, at the end, the conflict the characters have with, fuck, I like you a lot more than I thought I would at the beginning of this day, and now I don't know what to do, because this plan I had mm-hmm. kind of consisted on... Like, the it, it the, the premise was... We would see each other, and maybe we would have sex or whatever, and it would be a fun little day, and that would be it. But now I'm like, no, I actually really connect to you, and I don't know what I'm going to do about that because I live in America and you live in France. And, like, that – so, like, that's the only time – well, the, the, yeah, I mean, but they cover that. They, it's, they thought themselves – they thought, like, uh, sure as all of the reasons they like each other is because they are both thinkers um, – you know, like they're both very contemplative people who like to ponder things, and that's what they respond to in each other. Like they thought themselves, they thought too much, and then they thought themselves into making a dumb decision, which is not exchanging numbers. Yeah, yeah, because because they keep kind of going like, oh, this is the rational thing, this is the adult thing. We're just gonna, um, we're you know, you know, we're, we're just gonna like part ways. We're, we're never gonna talk. We're just gonna let it fizzle out, which is kind of something you do when when you know you you live in your head a lot. You you do tend to sort sort of. Um, take a negative spin and a more conservative spin. But I, th- I think the beauty of these movies is um, that they all end with um, a character making a decision to take a chance. Um, and it's always, um, yeah, it's always a risk, which uh, I mean, I mean, that's kind of, at least in my experience, what, what fuels relationships is like, maybe it doesn't really make, um, you know, rational sense to do this. If we look at this situation objectively, this is a really dumb thing that we're doing, but let's do it anyway because we can't not do it. And, uh, of course, the famous joke at the end of Annie Hall. A uh, guy walks into a doctor's office. He says, Doc, you got to help me. My brother thinks he's a chicken. And the doc says, why don't you tell him that he's not a chicken? And he goes, well, I would, but we need the eggs. And uh, that being Woody Allen's metaphor for being in a relationship being relationships, which is an irrational thing, but you do it anyway because you need the eggs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah. So this, so what defines this movie is, and I guess what defines a lot of Linkletter's films uh, like this, or Waking Life, or Days and Confused, um, I which I feel, or Slacker, which I feel are all part of the same thing, which is Richard Linkletter understands two things that make conversations really. Interesting, which is one, the actual content, which is people talking about things and pondering things and having thoughts about things and disagreeing about things and debating things. And so there's that content of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's happening in this movie is the subtext um, and how people reveal themselves without without realizing it. And the progression in this movie of Ethan Hawke as sort of – he presents himself in a very specific way at specific times, especially early on. He's like, hey, I'm cool, smart, charming guy, and I know I have an American accent, but let me assure you, I'm super smart. I'm not just, you know. <laughs> I'm sensitive 90s I warm guy. Up to him. Yeah, yeah you know? I'm, I'm sensitive 90s guy. And, and all like, and, you know, he's really doing the sell. And then once he has her and once they're together and once that's just how it's going to be, like, it becomes way different. Uh, where, 
a lot of that facade sort of drops and he even reveals sort of ugly parts of himself, like the way he deals with the fortune teller or like how, yeah. he, how just so mm-hmm. cynical and dismissive he gets immediately and how different they are in regards to that, where I don't think she necessarily buys into the idea of what the fortune teller told her, but she at least likes the idea and she at least is like has a little bit of respect for what the person is doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ethan Hawke's character uh, where Jesse's character sort of sees it as an opportunity to sort of be like, Lord, his intellectualness over her. And right, like, he, he can't just let himself have fun. Yeah, exactly. And so there's there's moments of that where they're even sort of put each other off a bit. But for the most part, it's just uh, a dream. <laughs> and it really is just that dream encounter, that really great first date where – you say something and it's clicking and then they say something and it's exactly what you hope they would say. And you go, Oh yes. And then, and then, and you like, you just suddenly, it feels, it feels like just slipping in to a comfortable shoe. Um, Mm -hmm. it captures that really well. And, um, and of course there's the, uh, there's the setting, which is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, there, there's some, that's something that I really love about these movies is that like, it's always summer. It's always perfect. It's always in this beautiful part of Europe, um, different, you know, different place every time. And there's these um, little kind of threads of, I don't know how else to describe it. Magic that kind of um, run throughout them. I think, I think even the characters have that same discussion in every movie where they're just like, do you believe in God? Do you believe in magic? You know, um, and kind of, you know, explain to each other, you know, how but they the, feel about the it. The tenor changes dramatically. Oh yeah. Movies, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. but um, I, I noticed that um, th- there's always uh, like street performers. Um, and that man who writes a poem. Yeah. That again yeah. is another opportunity where like the way they react to the to the guy who writes them the poem right. defines the differences between their characters. Oh, right, right, because then it's it's Julie Delpy's character. Celine's the one who's being cynical, right? Because isn't she the one? Who's no, no, like, she's he's the one being cynical. Oh, again. oh, where he's like, oh, they he's just like, you know, they word. just plug in that word, yeah. right, right. Um, I think he's also interested in just the idleness that a lot of people experience too. I mean, there's obviously it's you know more in something like uh, Days and Confused and. I mean, it's just these individuals who are kind of struggling to evolve, and sometimes they, you know, can't assert themselves. But what they do, and sort of how they cope with who they are, and they really embrace the idea of small community, whether if it's with one person or two people or mm-hmm. a larger group of people, in something like Days and Confuse, and uh, you know, almost in like the way Scorsese embodies New York City, Linklater actually embodies a place that you know I've been to and can sort of see why he he fits in there in that environment and that's Austin, Texas mm, where the, mm-hmm. it has this really interesting community with intellectuals, you know, some slackers and some romantics, a little bit of everything. It's like this, you know, kind of artistic melting pot of of interesting I was listening to um an interview that um Linklater did in the mid 90s on this like local uh, access television show in Austin and they said that um, the local police department actually blamed Slacker for the increase of homeless youth in the city. That basically, you know, <laughs> wow. drifters from around the country were seeing this movie and being like, oh, Austin would be a cool place to hang out. That It is such a Texas... Um, he is such a Texas filmmaker uh, in his sensibility. Not just the movies that take place in Texas, though um, obviously one of the things I really like about the, his movies is that so is that a lot of them do take place in Texas. But ha- as having grown up in Texas and specifically having grown up in the neighborhood in Texas where most of the people who worked at NASA um, lived in, in Houston, 
um, it was sort of an interesting sensation where it was there was that element of good old boy sort of southernness, um, which you know, which has its uh, negative sort of connotations of ignorance and stuff like that, but also has its positive connotations of friendliness and general neighborliness. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there was that, uh, and so I, I didn't grow up in Austin, but there was still, because I was sort of in that neighborhood with all of these people who worked at NASA um, and also Texas is a huge, uh, especially in the nineties, it was a huge center for uh, software companies. So a lot of computer programmers lived in that area as well. Um, there was also just that level of intellectuals, um, and sort of that meeting spot in between a good old boy and intellectual, uh, is Richard Linkletter. Uh, yeah. he, he embodies all the best elements of Texas. I would say he is, he is, I am, if I was, if I was to think I'm proud of growing up in Texas, which I'm, I'm not, I don't really have much civic pride of any kind cause I moved around so much growing up, but like. Uh, if I thought about all the good qualities of Texas, they're pretty much all embodied in Link Letter, which is which is just friendliness and openness and a weird sense of um, uh, unassumingness and lack of pretension for the level of intelligence he has. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's there's just something friendly about all the conversations they have. I mean. Uh, Early on, you can sort of tell Ethan Hawke is playing his kind of games where he wants to impress Julie Delpy's character in Before Sunrise. But once they actually get into it and they actually just realize, oh, we do like each other quite a bit and we're not just attracted to each other. like, And their conversations they're having, there's just a friendly um, intellectual quality to it. And there's very few filmmakers who are intellectual and friendly. Most intellectual filmmakers are very cold. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, I mean, I mean, to me, before um, before sunrise, the the most sort of um, the, the most romanticized aspect to me isn't that you know it's like oh these two beautiful people just have this meet cute and they fall in love. It's these two people meet each other and they're willing to be so open and vulnerable with each other like right off the bat and kind of say like you know wow we're in this present moment and we don't really know what we're going to do and they're just like both so aware of that and like um, that's that's something that is more romantic to me than them, you know, at the end of the movie being like, oh, in six months we're going to meet up, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I mean, my best first dates are where we just like, you know, we cut the, we cut to the chase and get right to some of the, you know, more interesting um, experiences that we've had in our lives. But I, th- I think this is just a really interesting ex- examination of how human beings inter- interact and connect, what brings them together, uh, you know, sort of the struggles they face, even even in just the first meet. Like, you know, there's definitely times where they don't click, but they're very accepting of that at the mm-hmm. same time. And I, th- I think that's really interesting to see, you know, on a first date, too, is like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm still really interested in you despite this thing that you just did that pissed me off or whatever that doesn't click with me. Well, that, that is an element of all first dates I have found. Where like someone will say something that you're that just rubs you the wrong way, but at the very least you are still with this person for another couple hours, you know. Right. Like at the very least, you have to see this through to the end of the night. So like you will put in your head a positive spin on something that just like oh I can't believe this person just said that they loved oh, Lord. Anne Rand novels or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> because I have actually literally done that at yeah. least twice. Yeah, like, oh, I ran novels. At least he reads. Yeah. <laughs> I should be more open-minded. Yeah. Right, exactly. Because you, like, so I, there's that level of openness to it. Um, I, this is my favorite of the before movies. Um, if only because it feels like the most universal. Um, and again, there's almost that, uh, that thing I was talking about, the, the uh, Scott McCloud thing, where the, the simpler something is, the more you can project yourself onto it. Mm-hmm. Where, um, uh, where it is just in s- these characters when you first meet them are blank slates, um, and everything about the way they're interacting with each other, you can see yourself in first dates you've had, or you can see yourself in relationships you've had. It's all of the good things about relationships. Um, one of the craziest things about the series of movies is that these movies existed all nine years apart from each other. And, but they feel so, they both feel so necessary for, to each other. And they also feel super, um, like they've, they've worked fine together. You mean sunrise and sunset? Uh, sunrise, sunset and before mid and, and midnight. They all sort of are their own thing. Like you would think, this movie without the retrospective of, oh, you're going to be seeing where these people are 18 years from now mm-hmm. and once the magic wears off and everything. And it's going to color how you view this movie. But even without that coloring, like this movie just works on its own. And you would think a movie this sunny with so little conflict would be dull. Um but it isn't because it's interesting because the first time I saw it, I didn't love it the way I do now. It really took me going from before sunset to revisiting the first one to make me love it. Yeah, you watch them in order, I assume. Yes, yeah. absolutely. We we did what uh, Andrew James suggested, where we watched before sunrise and before sunset together, mm-hmm. and then we watched before midnight uh, separately. So so we'll get to before midnight a bit, but I uh, I believe we had different takes on that one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but uh. But um, I guess the other way Richard Linklater works is he allows his actors to have a lot of input on the script and on their characters, and I think that uh, definitely shows here. I think they feel like such fully realized people. Mm-hmm. I, I've um, I've actually never related to a character in a movie as much as I like relate to Celine and see my like personality quirks where she's so like uh neurotic and insecure and no she's got good qualities too. I have good qualities. We have good <laughs> she, qualities. She's she's intelligent. <laughs> Thank you. And she's sexually liberated. <laughs> That's a very well. good quality. Um no and and she's and she's, she's uh, a strong moral compass. Which she's is act- activist. I'm to, yeah, certainly more in the uh, second two movies mm-hmm. than in this one. It's still f- sort of forming. That was that was funny. Jim, do you relate to Ethan Hawke's character in this movie? I relate to him more in Explorers than I did in, in the first one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think me and Jim are quite the dashing, handsome uh, college dropout that Ethan Hawke is in this. <laughs> One out of three ain't bad. One out of three ain't bad. <laughs> I am a college dropout. Thank you. <laughs> but but like but it is, but it's still you relate to them because they're they're fully realized uh, human beings and that has to do apparently like they weren't happy that they didn't get screenwriting credit on this one, which is why in the other two movies they do have a screenwriting credit um, because apparently they did a significant amount of work on like who their characters were and the kinds of things they would talk about. 
Yeah, I think these all three of these movies sort of represent, you know, once again what you know Ebert said in the past about movies being a great empathy machine. And this is like, you know, transference <laughs> through and through. Um, because having gone through a long distance relationship where there was so much uncertainty and ambiguity and, you know, meeting up a, a couple of times and then being separated, it was just like, I think by, by the time the second one came around and I saw it in the midst of going through something like this, that really hit home for me. And plus there's, you know, we, we can transition onto the second one if you're ready Unless you have more to bring up for the first one. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Um, There's there's actually, you know, also in the beginning of Before Midnight, there's these long sequences that take place in a car. Um, Or Mm -hmm. while they're they're driving. I've noticed that Linklater does that quite a bit, where he has long driving sequences, especially as, like, exposition. That is Texas. Oh, Texas has a crazy (laughs) car culture. Texas, not just... There's the good old boys working on the Transams and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's the Latino car culture, which is an entirely separate car culture. Mm-hmm. And then there is the African-American car culture, which is, again, a third car culture. But uh, especially Houston, where he grew up, is a crazy – like that is the defining um, – to get to get into my uh, rap nerd uh, <laughs> to, for a bit, if you wanted to like talk about the defining sound of Houston rap, it was based on – what li- what sounds good when it's 100 degrees out and you're driving in your car? Hmm. And that was sort of the invention of DJ, DJ Screw. And that's why they have all that chopped and screwed music that just sounds like it's all like a tape playing too slowly. Because when it's that hot out and you're driving around, you just feel like your brain is melting and that music works perfectly. And that's why they were – you know, that's why they do codeine cough syrup and all that. So like, yeah, that's a total – that's the other way I like relate to his movies as far as being Texas things. Even though when I – Grew up in Texas. I was not the age where any me or any of my friends drove, mm-hmm. but just like that, that that area is total car well, heavy I, culture. Well, I also feel like um, transportation, um, especially being in a car or on a train. Um, at, at least when I'm, especially when I'm on the L here in Chicago, I, I kind of feel like that's when I notice time going by, and that's, that's when I notice time is is like kind yeah. of a linear thing. Well, because that because it's because you have such specific. It, to jump ahead to before midnight when they're talking about like time having such specific markers with their because with their twins oh, right right yeah like that is sort of how it is on a train where you're like it's 11 o'clock and i'm at this stop and mm-hmm. now that i'm this much farther south five stops down it's 11 10 and yeah and so it's like yeah it has mm-hmm. very specific markers yeah but even just as like very simplified like going from a to b like mm-hmm. like i feel like that's very much how he's how he's looking at at time in his movies and he really wants you to notice that and i and i feel like even being in a car is like a great way to um highlight that sure yeah he definitely has a preoccupation with the like the the peculiar sense of time and how the passing of it and you know what it does to a person or a couple and yeah i mean he br- he brings it up you know outright through dialogue in most of his movies i think and you know, and there's just some interesting moments where you know the characters in Before Sunset reflect on who they are at that point in time and what could have been, and like they just and they tear into each other in a way that we don't really see that intensely, which 
you know, I mean, you be in a, if you're in a relationship long enough, and these people aren't, they're just reconnecting after so many years, mm-hmm. they, they really get uh, confrontational and sort of, like, talk about the death of romance and all these things that really affect you when you're at that age and you're sort of realizing that, you know, you can't candy coat relationships because, oh, yeah. you know, at, at some point in time when you're early on trying it out, you, you do romanticize and idealize a lot of things and you, you just try to make the best of it, but then, you re, you know, reality gets in the way later in life. But I think yeah. what, what really and, and brings... Sort of- Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and, and that sort of um, repetition of frustration, like uh, Celine, um, when they're in the SUV at the end, um, and they're being uh, driven back to her place, she has that uh, great, like, cathartic monologue where she's just like, every boyfriend I have gets married to someone else, and I don't want them to marry me, I just want them to propose, and I was just like, oh, girl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's one of my favorite moments throughout the whole trilogy, is that ride they share together and how honest they get yeah and and it's interesting because i think at the time i wouldn't be surprised if ethan hawk is reflecting on his real life because he was going through uh, a divorce with uh uma thurman oh, and yeah, talking about right. his boy and like I, I think you know maybe some reality snuck into that uh you know that let me tell you reality bites <laughs> he got it <laughs> That was a someone. Someone. I'm sure <laughs> one of our listeners is making a directors directors club soundboard. Oh no! <laughs> I would be so embarrassed if somebody isolated my laughs and my. If noises. someone could take that laugh right there and put it on that directors club soundboard you're already working on. <laughs> I would really like that, and then we could go make pr- prank phone calls. Well, luckily, we're not as big as Film Junk to where we're going to get, like, remixes of our episodes anytime. No, our, our listeners don't give a shit. Our listeners like to listen to this as they're, as, as they're like, nodding off after – I don't know. I was, I was calling over listeners heroin addicts. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but I listen at the gym. So uh, Before Sunset is actually my least favorite of the three films. What? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's going on the soundboard. yeah that's on the soundboard that's on the directors club soundboard. Um, Please tell me that you love the ending at least. No, I I like the whole movie a lot. It's my least favorite of the three films because it is it is so specific to the characters. I will never go through what the characters are going through in this. This movie cannot exist without Before Sunrise, um, which I don't feel is quite the same about Before Midnight. Um, and obviously before sunrise works well on its own, this movie is purely about the first movie where it's about a very specific thing. And what makes the movie great. And I do think all three movies are really great. Um, what makes the movie great is that uh, the characters are so well developed that like even you see so, – so you have one movie where you see them in one day of their entire life and then you have a second movie where you see them nine years later but still a single like two-hour two period of their life. Yeah, not even. Not, yeah, not even two-hour period um, and they feel so lived in and they feel like so well-realized. It's, it, it, it takes – it suggests so much with so little and – so, like, the fact that the characters feel so real to me and the fact that the way they deal with everything and the way that they're sort of sniping at each other but they're sort of catching up and they're sort of flirting once again and then 
slowly, like almost like a magic trick before your eyes, you see them sort of proposing uh, that Ethan Hawke cheats on his then wife without saying it outright. Like you see them sort of flirting with the idea. Like, so one person will drop a sexual reference. The other person will drop a sexual reference Mm -hmm. to the, and walk up the stairs to her apartment is like, I just love that because it's mostly silent and they're holding a cat. By then it's almost assured (laughs) what they're going to end up doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even before that, like the, also the way this movie reveals information is really fascinating. Like the way, um, you're watching the movie for a while before she goes, so I read you were married. And then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's married. Like, oh, the, I noticed they, the wedding ring right away. Oh, so you noticed the wedding ring. Scene, I didn't yeah. notice the wedding ring he's marrying, uh, he was wearing. So like, I didn't know he was married until someone referenced it. And then it, but both the characters involved knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of recontextualized everything. And, um, God, there's something – okay, so I say this is the least relatable because – or least universal because it's so specific. But there – You're going to go on a book tour someday. I just know it. So don't right. worry. You'll be, in, you'll be in France on a book tour and you'll be able to relate to this movie then. Well, right, because I'll, I'll finally get to meet that one – the one that got away. Who would be the one that got away? I, it's not relevant. Um, <laughs> I don't, yeah, who's it going to be? <laughs> It'll be you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Would the Ted Levine show up all of a sudden? Yeah. <laughs> I love you very much. Put the lotion in the basket. Um, uh, but there is the thing uh, where you're talking to an ex-girlfriend, which she is, you know, which they are definitively not ex-boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, but they have that vibe to them. Oh, yeah. Where you are almost feeling... And I, I feel like a creep even saying this because it is just a creep, creep kind of move. But there is the vibe where it's like when you're feeling like when you're talking to next girlfriend, it's like, so are you seeing anybody like you seeing anybody? Because, I mean, we, we already had that chemistry already. If you wanted to, if you wanted to I don't know. I mean, we could just have sex. <laughs> like, like they're kind of feeling each other out in that creepy kind of way that exes feel each other out. Like exes that don't end like horribly. That is. Um, well, also because they have the the. That like such unique um, situation of why their thing ended because That's it was, true. It was yeah, complete exactly, fight. exactly. So of course they have to wonder what might have been. It's not like they're at that point where it's like, oh well, you didn't give me my space and you cheated on me. It was like, well, fate intervened and yeah. we couldn't connect again. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I guess I guess the way I related to that was my high school girlfriend who I was very much in love with, but she went away to college and I didn't. So it was, and we both were like adult enough to know like, well, a long distance relationship would be really dumb. Yeah. But then when she would return home, I'm like, yeah, well, sort of. Because then when she would return home, I'd be like, so, I mean, you're home. I mean, I, mean, I know we're not seeing each other, but, 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 but like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that, that's the way I related to that one. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. In that, fate, that because that, that, in that relationship, it was, Oh, fate cut it short. Surely we would have lived a thousand years happy together, married right. with a hundred children. <laughs> but, but I mean, you moved away to college, so what are, what are we going to do? It was just a perfect romance that was doomed. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, like, right, and and it kind of gives it the space to um, make. I, I mean, that I mean, I feel like before sunset makes before sunrise even more perfect and idealized because I mean, at least you know, 
Well, for a, a while, it, it sort of plays with that because yeah. she, the way she talks about it, like it didn't happen. It wasn't that great at, right. at the beginning. And he has it the makes book you, and he's... it makes you wonder. It makes you recontextualize the first film as maybe what we saw was the movie version of his book, like the, oh. of his, as opposed to like right. when she goes, "We didn't have sex." Like, like I was for right. a second, I was like, "Oh wait, yeah, so the did. first movie." So the first movie, not canon. Well, they cut away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they don't they don't show them having sex. They show them making out, and then it I cuts. thought it was implied heavily enough, and but I was implied. Redeemed, but in but I was redeemed in the end because they did have sex. That's that's right. But but yeah. <laughs> but I thought maybe like I thought it was potentially the the events that you see in the first film are unrelate are uh, unreliable. Oh, okay. and but then and by the end of before sunset, it's revealed that no, no, that all actually yeah. happened, but. I love that Jesse wrote a book about the about the events of the first movie. I think it gives it this great like meta element where they can kind of like comment on the the creation of the movies themselves and t- kind of have the, that sort of like way of looking at it. So, well, it's, so, it's did you wind up together at the end? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, well, number one, it's a great excuse to because if you were thinking like I don't know, do you know Jim or or Regina? Do you guys know if he intended this to be a series? I. Or how the sequel came about? I don't know. Because, like, obviously, Boyhood, he started off from the beginning, like, thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. But for this film, like, if you were looking at Poor Sunrise and nine years later you want to make a sequel, um, or let's say seven years later, um, to give them time to actually make it, like, that is a great uh, device <laughs> to have a reason for people to catch up, <laughs> is mm-hmm. he wrote a book about it, and mm-hmm. that is a great device for, like, well, this movie will not get made. Like before, Sunrise wasn't a huge mega, su- such a mega success that because one of the other crazy things about Before Sunset, it's an eighty-minute movie that it, that almost entirely, um, all, it almost entirely relies on the premise that the audience has already seen the first movie, right? And almost no sequels are like that. Like most sequels, actually, do the opposite, where they actually start things back at square one. They're, most sequels do the Ghostbusters 2 thing where it's like... The, the, one of the coolest things, and it wasn't until the most recent rewatch that I picked up on, was because, I mean, like a lot of sequels might do, and again, sort of use it as a crutch, cut back to the original and show us scenes, because that's what happens in Before Did you Sunset. Like that? I loved it. And what, what, what about the? Do you, what, no, the, it, it, it made. I thought it was great. It made it made me and Regina roll our eyes. Well, that's right. Normally it would, but I think in context of this idea that Ethan Hawke eventually talks about in regards to his next book idea about you know how time is this kind of illusion or it sort of exists mm-hmm. in this really okay, sort of yeah, non-linear yeah, yeah. fashion. I think like, and then and the cool part is you know they cut to her in the past. And then all of a sudden she's there, and the, you know they cut to her in the present. And I think that's really, I mean, it's 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 great for him to realize, oh my God, she's here, whoa! And but I think it's just interesting in context of, especially knowing now after watching a few Link Letter movies back to back, about this you know preoccupation he has with the exa- examining time and what it means, and you yeah. know there's even cr- that crazy theory about uh, Philip K. Dick. And, in, and towards the end of Waking Life that I found endlessly interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I really love, you know, how this movie uh, works after, like, in context of a trilogy now. I thought it was great when I first saw it. And Don't I even call said, it a trilogy. In nine years, you're going to regret it. There could be another <laughs> one. 
you're gonna you're gonna see before twilight, and you're gonna go, oh man, I should have called what happens this trilogy. with Kristen Stewart and yeah, Robert yeah. Hansen. Okay, <laughs> just about movies. Kristen Stewart's non-vampire dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I have to say, I I actually. Um, after thinking about it, do agree um, with, with the, those sort of little flashbacks at the beginning of Before Sunset, where I do ultimately like that as a device because I feel like it's a good visual representation of how memory works, where it's like, oh, I'm talking about like my ex in this really abstract kind of way, but I'm thinking about this like really you know impactful moment, and that's kind of representing everything to me, even though I'm not oh, talking yeah. about no, it. Oh yeah, you're right because yeah, mm. he's being really cagey about how like where the reality starts right. and where the fiction begins, yeah, but like. Like in his head, it's clear. Like, oh no! Like, I'm thinking of a very specific thing. Yeah, I, I just when we were watching it, I just took the opportunity to make a Silent Night, Deadly Night two joke, and I think that's kind of <laughs> why there was the the kind of um, why, why it might have ruined it for you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a good point. It's a good. It's a good point. But um, yeah, uh, before sunset, I think maybe it's better shot. Is that does do you guys agree with that? Like, there's I think maybe Linkletter is was a just visually because Linkletter has sort of taught himself how to make movies, yeah. and he is not a formalistic, like formalistically focused director. He is a you know he's a writer director who's interested in the themes he wants to explore and stuff. Um, I think Before Sunset has it's a little more beautiful. There's a more complicated kind of um, you know long takes mm-hmm. and stuff that are a little more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm such a sucker for long takes. I mean, that's just, and it, it's a film that literally just takes place during the magic hour. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, lo- I love the fact that it's shot in real time because that builds the tension so gorgeously. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. the other two two films like don't. I mean, they they do that because there is like the you know only, we only have this one night before I have to get back on the train. Only we only have this one night that our hairy Greek friend you know gave us <laughs> in the hotel. Um, but but neither of those films have the urgency. Oh, yes. Before Sunset. Before Sunset and is the most urgent. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, it, I, I never before have I seen a romance movie where I was, like, on the edge of my seat. Like, like <laughs> okay, when are they going to make the decision? And it's, like, all yeah. in real time. Um, I didn't – I mean, you're talking about the visuals. I, I thought that they could have done a better job of um, exploiting the, pack, the fact that they're filming in Paris – yeah, in Paris, and and you never really see the city. I, mean, I almost, it's very feel, like it, I almost feel like if they focus on Paris more, it would have been less urgent. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Because focusing on Paris would have meant long shots, and long shots would have meant you don't see their faces. Yeah, yeah. So, I, and I guess also also to Celine, it's just another day because she fucking lives there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the other two films, like like I felt like like Vienna is portrayed very beautifully, especially those scenes at the end when the sun's up and you're kind Greece of, is gorgeous. Oh my oh, yeah. god! I know, right? <laughs> we all just <laughs> orgasm just. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, so you're that is an interesting idea, like that it's because when you're actually in that situation where you are in sort of a more desperate romantic situation, it is an on the edge of your seat thriller. Yeah, where. It's a it's a tricky like you have to say the words perfectly and right. it's, it's almost like a right you know it is it's like a spy thriller almost because you like because you need to keep your cover story you need to say the things that will get what you need and oh yeah yeah we're we're, we're time is just coming at this like really high price and it's like oh we only have ten minutes together yeah. and then I have to get back on the bus and go back to Rogers Park <laughs> well that was that was when we were dating and we didn't live together yeah exactly. <laughs> 
like Paris and Texas. Chicago, <laughs> Chicago's really big, even when, especially when you don't have a car. Yeah, when you don't when you don't have a car and you live on the far north side, and I live on the uh, the uh, central west side. Right. <laughs> but but yeah, there is. But you're right. There, there is a sense of like, oh, we only have five minutes. We only have four minutes. Oh, god damn it! All right. Yeah, and but of course, they go. Fuck it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the end, which is great. Yeah. That, oh that, my god. I was that. Oh, this that is, ending this is amazing. This is one of my top five favorite endings of all time. Oh yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it is, absolutely. In, in what it suggests, um, it, where it sort of catches, I, or at least it caught me, and I think it catches the audience sort of off guard mm-hmm. as far as you're on it. All right, what are they gonna? Are they gonna kiss? Are they gonna kiss? Oh, yeah. there's their part. She's dancing for. Oh, she's gonna start stripping. Are they gonna? Yeah. Are they gonna fuck yeah. now? What are they gonna? Yeah. But then instead of giving the audience what they want, because the thing about both movies uh both the first two movies i should say not the third movie which had an extended argument in which uh julie delpy was topless no but boobs the, but the uh but the first the first two movies they're both um despite you know being char- having characters that are uh, you know unashamed of sex and being all about sexual tension they're both pretty chaste movies yeah. um, i was thinking about like you know what this is actually a very romantic movie it's very nice this is a movie i'd like to watch with my mom and and then I'm like, oh, you know, what would be interesting because I think I could watch that second movie with my mom too because I think she would, you know, she get invested in the characters. It'd be a nice movie, and I think it'd be a cool movie to watch with mm-hmm. her mom. And then when I watched Before Midnight, I was like, I can't watch this with my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say about the um uh, the ending of Before Sunset where it's just sort of you know he he's made that decision to stay and he's made that decision to like completely fuck up the life that he has. Yeah, in like New York. that's a huge decision. Yeah, but it happens in just this such a quiet way, and it's so impactful. And that made me think of um, Mitch and Sabrina in Dazed and Confused, where I was so compelled. I mean, I mean that's like a cast of thousands kind of movie, but I was so compelled by like the just the quiet choices that they make to kind of like be the cool kids and drive around and smoke pot and like make out with the senior. And there, there's no real like, oh, am I going to do this? Am I not? My mom told me not to, but they just sort of like make these decisions. And like, I was so captured by them because it's just, you can kind of see their future unfolding and you know, they're going to be the coolest fucking kids in school and you (laughs) don't even need to see it happen. It's just because like they make these, these like quiet, natural choices. And that's what I think. Yeah. yeah, Days Confused works the exact same way where so much is implied both what had come before. Mm. Like there's that moment where Mitch's sister is, is, is hitting on pink um, in the forest Mm -hmm. and they have that moment where. Like, he's trying to feel her up, and then she's like, no, that's too far. You have a girlfriend or whatever. And it's this whole narrative that we're not really in on until that moment. Right. And it's only this glimpse of this sort of love triangle that we didn't know existed before. Right. And Or those two guys who get in a fight. Like, maybe there was some kind of, like, previous tension there that's yeah, been building all Yeah, year. and it's – yeah, and – or, like, all – like you said, all the things that imply afterwards. Like, oh, once Mitch gets to high school – you know, once he's gonna be so high, cool. Oh yeah, once Sabrina gets to high school, like they're, the things they learn on this night are gonna apply to their narratives. But you don't need, but you, but it's implied so heavily. You don't need to see their narratives. You just, you just, yeah. And that's, and that's, and of course, since all of all three of these movies take place over the course of a day, mm-hmm. like Days Confused, it ends up being a really, uh, they end up sort of operating the same way. Yeah, like where I, so much is suggested by of what con- what came before and what is going to happen. Yeah, after. and and it highlights the present moment so perfectly, which is what I feel like his movies are about when he's actually making a movie and not just phoning it in. <laughs> <laughs> we we did watch part of uh, Bad News Bears. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was sort of like I'm gonna lie here and watch this until I can't watch it anymore, and that's gonna compel me to do chores. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
No, but, but uh, Before Midnight is really, uh, you know, I mean, it, it puts the ending of Before Sunset in a different context where I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful and I just mm-hmm. love that. Every, But look at, you know, the kind of regret that Ethan Haw- or that Jesse's carried throughout. I mean, it's like, he, obviously he's appreciative of, you know, the relationship he has and I, I know that he's still connected to... Um, Celine in a lot in a very profound way. They're still together, but there's this sense of what if prevailing through him. Right. Can, so, can I can I ask a quick question? So this movie came out last year, and I know that you guys have that rule about no spoilers um, for over two years. But can we talk about the end of this movie? Is that okay? Can we do that? You guys, yeah, let's, you, you I, I, I think right. so. I think we should just say. Um, everybody, go to directorsclubpodcast.com. Uh, find the uh, find the page for this episode. You will find time stamped. Um, you know, when this discussion happened uh, and then we'll timestamp when the discussion for, uh, you know, all the before movies ends and we start talking about the other Linklater movies we want to talk about. Go ahead and skip to that time date if you don't want Before Midnight spoiled. Um, I want to ask real quick. Uh-huh. So like I like Andrew James suggested the last on the Polanski episode, um, me and Regina watched Before Sunrise and Before Sunset together and then we watched Before Midnight apart and Regina watched it first and everything she had said about it sort of implied to me to believe it would be almost like a uh, um, almost like a John Cassavetes movie where it would just be intense uh, arguing and and do- domestic uh, you know uh, sort of unhappiness and stuff like that. That it would be a really trying kind of movie. So um, I want to go around real quick um, without giving that much uh you know detail i want to know do you think this movie is optimistic or pessimistic or somewhere in between um jim do you think this movie is optimistic pessimistic or somewhere in between Mm, you know the romantic in me wants to go optimistic but i do just because i you know i think he is fond of ambiguity especially with something like I don't know if the ending of Before Sunset is all that ambiguous, to be honest. But no, that that's the one ending that isn't ambiguous in the series so far. I think at the time it felt like it, but nah, not now. Uh, obviously, because <laughs> you know they wind up together. Um, I think it's somewhere in between. I don't know for sure that they're going to be able to work it out. Regina? Um, I ultimately think it's optimistic. I mean, there were elements of this movie that I found like kind of depressing and upsetting but um again like like and why why I wanted to like you know break the spoiler rule is because I think just the end makes it optimistic where I'm with I'm with her the whole time through like all those like misgivings and frustrations and neuroses that she's having and especially um as someone who deals with a lot of anxiety where it's like someone can make this one little comment and then suddenly you've blown up in your head like oh my god we're picking up and moving to Chicago and there's nothing I can do about it but at the end she kind of puts all that aside and makes the decision to keep trying and just th- that little moment where she's like, okay, I'll play your stupid fucking game and I'll imply that we're going to have sex. And like, I'm, I'm going to keep trying. Like, like- I read a couple of articles that implied that Celine becomes a complete unsympathetic character in this movie. She did. And that's why I don't like it as much. Uh, what? I didn't. Th- I will, I didn't okay. Find so I agree with you. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I, I figured you would think it would be pessimistic. I think it's optimistic. A uh-huh. very optimistic movie. Um, how, 
Okay, go into that. How is she unsympathetic? Um, well, I don't think that she's unsympathetic um, because, like, like I said, I can very much relate to her um, coming from a place of anxiety in in how they're talking, especially in that hotel room fight. I just think that um, Jesse's frustrations and his misgivings are shown in that first scene where he has to say goodbye to his son, and he's worried about did I make the right decision? And you absolutely see that. Whereas Celine, she's only speaking her frustrations like she's saying like oh you know i'm the one who's always taking t- care of the twins but you never see that yeah so you're really just going off of like her you know her own testimony to her frustrations but but and and i know that that, that link later um you, you know he breaks he breaks that show don't tell um rule he breaks it all the time and i love that about him but it just it doesn't feel balanced to me like um, what was I gonna say? Because it's, and especially because Jesse keeps saying, you're crazy. And, you know, he, he tells, he tells her that, that she's crazy and that she's being irrational. So you, where you, you before got these like very balanced portrayals, it's just, it's thrown askew and I felt really uncomfortable so watching it. So I, so. <laughs> that's because they spend so much time together and I don't know, there have been many instances in relationships where there are arguments that get, really out of control and you say things you don't mean and oh no doubt like when she said i i believe that is true when she says that you know what it's because i don't love you anymore i don't think she means that i think that is something where she's trying to be hurtful yeah um i mean i'd I'd agree with that but also she i mean i mean just the fact that like she won't listen to him when he's saying i'm not saying we have to move to chicago and she just can't hear it and i know why she can't hear it like i know in my heart why she can't hear it i've been there but it just i don't feel like it's very sympathetic to her so okay so two things or i guess uh, a couple dozen things uh <laughs> one i i i had this thought mm-hmm. do you think the do you think the title before midnight in part um is a reference to Cinderella and how their perfect romance that was all theoretical (laughs) has finally has the, 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 that the, the carriage has turned back into a pumpkin and they actually, this is the first movie in the series where they actually dealing with real shit as opposed to like the theoretical possibility of their wonderful, perfect romance. You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way, but I am such a sucker for like parallels with mythology and fairy tales that <laughs> yeah. I will buy it. I thought maybe midnight was like the cutoff for the couple's massage and like the spa shut down. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we can't do it after midnight. She gets way too crazy. You know how much coke there's going around in Greece. Um, oh no, okay. So here's the thing about the opening of this movie mm-hmm. that you say like, oh, you get to see his actual struggle where you don't get to see her struggle. Mm-hmm. His kid's fine. His kid is super smart and well-adjusted. And right, but is, he's not fine, and you see why he's okay, not fine. You don't see why she's not but fine. But his whole... But <laughs> he his, wants to be a full-time dad, you know? Right, but his whole justification for that is, oh, he needs me. And that's not true. That's It's so much just about him need. He needs... He, Ethan Hawke needs his son more than his son needs him. They're, like, his son is well-adjusted. They could... Uh-huh. Skype more often if that's what they wanted. Like they right. already suggested at the beginning of the movie all the different things they could do to have them be a more constant presence in your life. There's right. so many ways you can be a presence without living in and I'm not saying that it's a not big deal, but well, I, I, think- I feel that I was automatically on her side. Almost really? like I just the way it was set up, I thought and also because these movies all take place during one day, mm-hmm. and because each movie after the first one implies a certain what has all everything that has happened in that passage of time is implied in what people are saying and 
the way people speak, what they're saying isn't necessarily the objective truth. What they're saying is just the, how the they truth truly in that feel moment. About, yeah, yeah, how they feel. So. Yeah, because she does have that line where she's like, oh, you're always like this after he leaves. Right. Also, the implication to me is this isn't the first time – like, this isn't the first time he's suggested moving to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that the character of Celine in the first two films is the type of character to jump to a crazy conclusion like that when he says something as much as, man, I just wish I could see him more. I think she knows where that's going. She's uh, okay. had this conversation before. And obviously it's ambiguous because you don't see because you don't see that conversation. He's before. looking for a way out. Is that exactly. what you're saying? Yeah. Well, not necessarily a way out of the a relationship, but he's he's looking to undermine I do believe that he was like undermining See see okay, so this is why these movies are so brilliant cuz that is how relationships actually fucking work where you can be selfish and selfless in the same breath with the same yeah <laughs> like you can honestly yes you can say don't take that job you'll hate that job you don't want that job like you're just gonna be miserable all the time i hate it when you're miserable all the time you are doing great work right now and you'll say that and you will mean it and in your head you will think i'm saying this because i care about this other person but you have ulterior fucking motives. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jim, don't move to Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's what I told you. I said, Jim, you'll hate it in Michigan. Stay in Chicago. Um, we had a scene much like – I mean, you were shirtless the whole time. <laughs> we, had, we had a scene just like in this movie. Was there a couple's massage? There, there was a, of course. There, we we skipped the massage. We just, we just gave each other happy endings. Oh, okay. I loved it but, when you reenacted the first time we met. That was really cute. When, <laughs> <laughs> but and so, like one of the great things about this movie is, unlike so many other movies um, about sort of a relationship, not necessarily a toxic relationship, because I believe they have a healthy relationship. Oh yeah, yeah. I believe all healthy relationships have arguing in them because that means two people are being honest with each other. Um, I think what the, any relationship that is rocky, unlike so many other movies, all the reasons that they're rocky are sort of expressed. I mean, not all other movies. Like, I, I suppose, like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the same way, where you slowly learn why they're like this as they're being like that. But in this movie, you reveal so much of, oh, of course she's holding on. There's resentment about mm-hmm. this person that he fucked, you know, at the bookstore, and he won't admit it, and... You know, like, and she is manipulative in this way and he's manipulative in that way. And I find it really balanced. And I, if anything, I it was balanced in her favor, I found. Really? Because I, I didn't feel that way. I think it was because the first scene with his son leaving um, is such a contrast to the end of the first movie for me. Where it's it's like that, that saying goodbye and it's like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. That's a, I, and, never, and, I didn't think about that it that just, way. that just like like hit me in the gut so i was automatically more sympathetic to him from the get-go and she seems kind of less she seems a little colder and it's and i mean i mean i guess yeah so then i was picking up on when she was like um maybe not being as sensitive a partner as she could have been like 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 she knows even if he's being kind of irrational that that he really misses his son like right after he leaves and then she doesn't let him talk to him on the phone like that didn't seem like a, like a very yeah. That's that's the one part that I kind of went wow. That was cold. I mean, I, she, she's kind of been cold, you know, in the hotel room yeah, on and off. Sucked. And then he just. But I mean, okay. So we as viewers know that we're not going to get to see him talk to his son in the movie mm-hmm. because she doesn't let him talk to his son at those moments. 
but he just saw his son for six weeks. He he yeah. ju- he's going to talk to his son again in the future. Like I, I guess you don't have parents she's who are with, neurotic she's about with, you traveling. She's withholding from him talking about talking to his son in our presence. <laughs> but yeah, as yeah. I don't think that's completely unacceptable considering they just spent the last six weeks with him around. All right, yeah, but- and this was supposed to be their night and all that. But um, so I don't know. This this gets into weird territory because actually the one thing, the like one single thing about this whole series of movies that um, I'm not as big of a fan of is – and I – and honestly, I don't know if this is Richard Linkletter. This is his – this is his point of view um, or – and I, I kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say this is more – this is how people contextualize these things and how people compartmentalize these things. There's talk in all of in all four of these movies. All four of these movies. I saw the fourth movie, by the way. I'll be telling you about it a little later. <laughs> you have a time machine of your own. Yeah, that's it's not right. just a metaphor for saving our relationship. It's a literal time machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Word to Jay Cheel. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I uh, saw so three of these movies. There's uh, something where they talk about men and women. Oh, in yeah. sort of inherent ways, like men are inherently this way. And women are inherently this way. And I – honestly, just the way that Richard Linkletter is in most of his movies and like you know, we watch we, we watch Slacker. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the women in that movie are not at all defined by being a woman. Like right. he, he writes female characters just like he writes any other character I find – or at least in Slacker. And I find Slacker is probably his closest movie to here is my philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so I don't know if this is what Richard Linklater believes or if this is accurate. And I, I do believe this part is accurate. This is what couples do, um, which is they contextualize everything. Well, well, like whenever they don't see eye to eye, they go, well, you're a woman. I'm a man. And that must be where the disconnect is coming from. Oh, God. And by the, by the third movie, you it's You breathe hydrogen and I breathe oxygen. Yeah, I know. But by, the, helium, by yeah. the third movie, it's basically men are from Texas, women are from France. Like, <laughs> it, it just got like, – like, I mean in the, in the first couple movies, it's like, OK, I guess, I guess people who you know, do talk like that who aren't you know, post-structuralist feminists. But by the third <laughs> movie, it's just like, oh, it's insufferable. It's like all they talk about – and they're just like, oh, those kids with their Skype. And it's just like, But oh. again, it's, I think, but, I, mean, I, I mean, think in the third movie. But, <laughs> but also maybe they have no the, other way to attack each other either. Well, no, I mean, it, there's mm. there's an element of that. But I think it's also, they are just, that is how a lot of people contextualize things. And I think that is, that is how you are sort of, you're, you're sort of taught to contextualize things that way. Whereas like, I don't get it. I want to be in this relationship with this other human being. And we seem to want the same thing. So why is all these problems? And the, and the response you always get is don't even try to figure it out. Women, but, but, duh, yeah. men, but, but, duh. and like, it's, it's sort of an oversimplification, especially as someone who, you know, who doesn't, you know, believe in, you know, uh, a gender binary, gender binary. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. That's why I was like, like completely cut off from that where I'm just like, Oh, I don't even trouble with that anymore. I, as, <laughs> as someone who is a dude, <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I, I say all this um, to say that is a fucking dude thing. Like a lot of what Ethan Hawke does, the fucking games he plays where right? I'm going to be the quietest one in the room and therefore I'm not being mean and I'm being rational because I'm not raising <laughs> oh, my no. voice. Like that oh, is, no. that is some painful. fucking dude shit. <laughs> not all dudes, but like I, so I'm, I'm assuming it's a socialization thing, but like, right. 
But God, yeah, like there's a lot of the way I almost feel like, I don't know. I mean, obviously I have to think about it differently now that I found out you, Regina, Uh um, also found his character more sympathetic than her character. Because while I was watching it, I was sort of like, I was like, the only way anyone would find her character unsympathetic is if they were just fucking misogynist or sexist or whatever. Like, but now I don't know. But like, well, it's not. It's not that I found her unsympathetic. Um, it's it, I. I didn't. I just didn't feel like the movie was very balanced towards her. I shouldn't say that I don't find her unsympathetic. I guess. I guess I just. I just feel like. It's it, well. It's easy to sit on the couch and be like, "No, Celine, use your words. Stop and think for yeah, a moment." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other. That's the other thing is they're in Buy this a self-help thing. book. It's called Cognitive Behavioral this- Therapy. It'll help you a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like there is that thing where. Like, Isaac. where they're in right now, there are moments where they both hang out on an olive branch, but the other are too invested in winning the yeah. current argument that they that they won't end it. Um, and it has, and that's why it escalates to the level it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering if people are just, I don't know, if they're you know, kind of uh, taken aback maybe by, you know, how external she gets and how direct and intense she gets. But I think it's hinted well, at early, a little okay, bit like her, her louder tendencies to be you know neurotic is it's in before sunset it's in the you know when they're driving in the suv together right. that's there already mm-hmm. um but i think well, people also, were focused on it so much in before that, midnight okay. oh that's okay i was just, i was just saying like i think people are really focused on it in before midnight because that uh persona seems to take over more. there's an there's another element, and I'll get you what you're saying real quick. There's another element where it's they've been married for apparently the first time they had sex with that condom, they had children. Yeah. So um, the implication is that their twins are like nine years old or near nine years old, like mm-hmm. eight years old or even seven, and that uh, they've been you know together that long. There seems, at least what I've observed from you know when I when I dated you know Carly. Uh, uh, like for five years, basically you get more and more hostile towards each other. Um, and that's just becomes your sense of humor. And that's because you are so confident and comfortable with each other. Oh yeah. That you can just casually say things that genuinely annoy you about the other person and kid the square. And like, so like when they're at that dinner, she's saying all these things like that are, you know, she's demeaning him in all these ways. And I can see that being like, Oh wow. Why is she saying she's being horrible? But like, Mm -hmm. I always I just took that as that's what happens when you're in a relationship that long is that's loving that's a <laughs> right I, I guess that's another form of it it really is it really because you just know everyone so you know you, the other person so well that you know all their faults and they know that you know all their faults because mm-hmm. you've had enough arguments about all their faults <laughs> and it just becomes a joke uh, and it just becomes like a running gag and sometimes. You know, you hide behind that humor to as in order to not address things, which I think Ethan Hawke does a lot. And sometimes you're too direct with that humor um, because that's the only way you know how to vent your frustration. And that's what I think Julie Delpy does. But mm-hmm. well, because the point I was going to make is that she does specifically say that she thinks that anger is healthy. Yeah, and he doesn't agree with her. So yeah. those are just like like two like different approach approaches that have probably been haunting them. Yeah, they clash. They listening to in that Simone, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, well, that's what more. I love. It's the, the wistfulness of the earlier movies. It's kind of dissolved, and I liked, yeah. you know, how, how more intense this. It, it, like when I first saw it, I was thinking, 
you know those those latter scenes, especially in the in the hotel room, is is Cassavetes esque or something that you'd seen in like scenes from a marriage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think when you have all this history and context, and you spent time with these characters through two other movies in different ways, it does add dimension. And I think that's what's really incredible about what Richard Linklater has accomplished, and probably will do the same. From what I heard about Boyhood, is just oh, spe- can't wait for that. Yeah, spending I, this much time with these people. I was, I was actually, I was thinking like, how would Boyhood work? Because this works because it's three whole movies. Mm-hmm. But then I was realizing like these are three whole movies, but they are three whole movies that are just twenty-four hour sections or or less than two hour sections of their life. Right. You know, and you could do that with Boyhood as well. Like you could just have chunks of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think maybe um, the the sort of tragedy of Midnight and maybe the reason why I don't um, cotton to it the way I do the first two is because um, Jesse and Celine both. I mean, they're they're taking each other for granted, but they're also taking kind of what's around them for granted. And maybe that's just sort of like a function of being a parent and being mid-career and you just kind of get into that mindset. But they're so less present than they are in the other films, even when they're talking yeah. about it, even when he's like, is this my life? Am I living? And she's like, yeah, you are. Because I noticed like, you know, in the first film, they have like all these interactions with like art, like they go in the record store and then there's like the poet and and it's like all this stuff and then in the by the third movie they're like oh there's these ruins oh let's not wake the girls up let's just drive by Whoa. and there's like one lone yeah. busker and they just walk by him and he's never he's just in the background I didn't even notice the busker. Yeah, it was. I mean, to me, that moment was painful when it's like this guy playing an accordion and they're just talking to each other and they just walk by and don't even notice. And it's like I, my heart broke because <laughs> I just seen before sun before sunset like the night before. So, do you think that this movie is propaganda to not have children? Yes, it's children is what has fucked everything up. That's right. Yeah, no, no one have any more children. Exactly. Just stay in Vienna forever. <laughs> but. uh I think there is something else to this that you can't discount, which is there's there's something special about moments, even when they're being antagonistic towards each other, that loving antagonism and that knowing antagonism that can only exist when you've known someone for a long time. I think those are really wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I think – you know, um, that a relationship, you know, it starts off exciting because you're still learning all these new things and you're still asking all these questions. But I think a relationship still can still be amazing when it's not exciting anymore. I mm-hmm. think it just becomes amazing in different ways. And I, and I am a firm believer in sort of like a, a, a domestic bliss of some kind. Yeah. And like when she's vid- when she's making a video on her phone. Of him eating the apple. Oh, yeah. And she's like, well, when he, I'm going to say this is video proof of her, you know, of her. Right. Yep. Her, her her father ate her ate, ate food right from her. Like that to me is just a fantastic moment because it's such a funny inside thing they're sharing. Right. In their shared experience of raising these kids. And right. Or even um, at, at the, the dinner scene where that older woman has that beautiful monologue about trying to remember her husband who's passed. Yeah. Now. She just sees him in these fleeting moments. Oh, my God. And it's like you kind of know that that's the end of the table they're going towards. Like the Greek kids are at the other yeah. end, you know, and it's just sort of like they're in the middle. But like they do have that like, I mean, I mean heartrending but really beautiful kind of you know it's not as technically you know uh you know wide-eyed and romantic as mm-hmm. uh, you know as the first two movies especially the first movie but those moments i do feel are beautiful and those movements are important and 
you know, if you look at those first, you look at those first two movies, it's like, yeah, they like each other a lot. It's because they don't fucking know each other. Like, this is, <laughs> like, the moments where they have together, the moments of grace they have together with mm-hmm. that history have so much more weight to them than an easy moment of grace that happens when you just met someone and you're both sort of meeting each other halfway because you want a first date to go well. I have to wonder if um, something that I noticed in the third film that made me um – I, I didn't really know how to take it is that she keeps Celine keeps trying to distance herself from Jesse's books where she's a character. And I wonder if that's why, because it's like, it's this romanticized idealized version of herself. That's not a part of their relationship anymore. So maybe she's just trying to like grow past it. I wasn't sure how to take it. Well, it's all, it, well, it also just it. speaks to her prime sort of complaints about their relationship is she doesn't, she wants to feel like they're two equals, like that first day they met. Right. Um, she doesn't want to feel like the wife of an author. Oh, yeah, yeah. She wants to feel like a partner. And I have to imagine all of – you have to know that after that second book came out, after that first book was already a success or whatever, like that would have – imagine if a Nicholas Sparks or whatever wrote a book that was – you know, and that's – so, I mean, I guess it's more literary than that, just based on where he's touring and everything, like smaller bookshops and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like um, that first book is a very romantic kind of novel. And I, and even in Before Midnight, it's heavily implied that it's like, oh, yeah, that's the ones – those are the ones I like because they're nice and they're romantic. And you, you see – and then it's like – and you see him moving away from that. Like you even see when she – when the person who works at the hotel is signing the two books, like – the first one is a nice thin book and the second one's a little thicker and it's yeah. like – and the third one, I don't know. It had this title that I couldn't even get past. <laughs> <laughs> and so like I can't, I can imagine like like every time that's brought up, that is just – that just aggravates. That just inflames the you know the wound in her that is already like feeling like she's a second-class citizen in their marriage mm-hmm. because, because he's the writer who has to have time to write and all that and she – is doing something that she feels it's I honestly think she feels is more important than what he's doing and is probably true, <laughs> but that's not, you know, but like, did I also mention that I work for a nonprofit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. I also related you to Celine's character. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, for people who I've known a couple of people who dismissed this as just, Oh, it's just two people talking. Ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. we've spent like a good, you know, hour and a half on three movies where it's just two characters. And there's so much depth behind, you know, just witnessing these interactions, the rhythm of their conversations, especially when they're arguing. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible. And like the illusion of these movies that like Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, they seem to be improvising, but they're not. These these were, you know, well rehearsed. It was all written down. It's not something like they think of on the spot. They actually sat and talked it through a lot in advance. They planned a lot. They, you know, decided what specifically the kind of arc that they wanted to experience, whether if it was reflected from their own lives or not. I think these are two, like, I, I never really thought highly of either of these actors until this series of movies. Do you want to talk about a different uh, Linkletter movie? Uh, I, I imagine I imagine you want to talk about Waking Life is what I'm guessing. Yeah. I think so, Mr. Mr. Dream. Mm. Yeah, it's your new name, Mr. Dream. You're the uh you're the you're the boss at the end of uh, Punch Out after 
Mike Tyson got into that domestic violence. You're, that was a I Mr. Dream. Saw, was it? I saw this movie at the same time I was taking a philosophy class in existentialism. Oh, cool. Um, so that, that kind of felt v- very appropriate at the time. But, um, you know, on a very personal level, this movie... I saw under the most extreme circumstances that I've ever experienced in my life because my father was dying and I had a pass to see Waking Life in Chicago and uh, my dad on his deathbed demanded that I go see the movie like he you know he, he was barely in and out of consciousness and I told him I have passes to see this movie but obviously I'm not going he's like no I want you to go why wow. do you know what was it was it something specific about Linkletter, or was it just he wanted you to be happy? Yeah, yeah, that's, he wanted me to be sweet. I know, right? And then I see this movie that's, you know, all, how many conversations in this movie are about death? And, right. you know, um, it was one of the most therapeutic experiences I've ever had watching a movie. And Richard Linkletter was there in person doing a Q&A. Um, so, I mean, like, there's just so many things going on in my mind watching this for the first time that like when a lot of people including you know past guest Eric Childress put this on their worst list for that year I almost took it like as a, <laughs> I like took it very personally but not just because of the circumstances I saw it under but I just had a completely different reaction to where these kinds of conversations are my, it's my jam it's what I love talking about in general but then after experiencing a tremendous loss of course I want to you know reflect a lot more on on life and a whole a whole slew of things including dreams and including time and uh you know just this whole gamut of things that i've always found interesting but the approach the approach that's you know that i've never seen this kind of animation style at the Mm -hmm. same time it gave him so much freedom to like you know fuck with people's clothes or you know have a talking rubber ducky on a boat for no reason like just these weird choices that sometimes you have to look for that are in the background um and and like oddly enough one of the um there's a professor that a professor of existentialism in this movie i read his work and i listened to his work and i thought it was really cool that he you know uh, he chose to include him i'm pretty sure he's a a professor at uh, uh university of texas in austin or something but um I don't know, like, everything about this movie works for me, but it probably is mainly because I have such a strong personal response to what's being discussed, but also the circumstances I saw it under still linger on for me today. And boy, oh boy, do I love this score. I love the music so much. It's, re- yeah, I, it's, great. it's really good. You said, you said Eric Childress doesn't like this movie? He thinks it's Does pretentious. It, he's the one who, he likes Forrest Gump, right? Mm-hmm. No further questions. Uh, <laughs> I do get a yeah. Yeah, um, yeah waking life's intense. Waking life intense, you say? Um, I, well, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm I'm right. <laughs> I do. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm right. I'm right there with with Jim. I mean, obviously, Jim. I don't. I don't have that personal connection to the movie that that you do. Um, I actually. I mean, I saw it for the for the first time the whole way through at least uh, last week. But um, I just kind of feel like what the characters are talking about um, in in most of the segments um, relates a lot to. Um, I guess the the tasks that I find myself on in like my spiritual journey, where they're where yeah they're talking about kind of like dealing with death, and they're also talking about um kind of being being present and being able to like fully conceptualize um being 
it, in the in the moment as it's as it's happening, I, like that scene um, where the where the two um, filmmakers are talking about the holy moment, which oh, is yeah. actually the 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 middle scene of the movie, like like it's dead center in that movie. I mean, to me, that's almost like Linklater's thesis for his career. I mean, it's either that or Julie Delpy has a quote in uh, in Before Sunrise where uh, where she says that if she believes in God, she um, she sees God as the space between two people, and if she believes in magic, she sees magic as the attempt to uh, share something with another human being. And to me, like like those yeah. two moments completely sum yeah. up what he's trying to do as an artist. I, I see. I see Waking Life definitely as um, sort of the the blueprint for the for Linkletter's movies. Um, not just because obviously it has so much in common with Slacker um, and the Before series, but like um, in general, the really great Linkletter movies are the ones that are just about characters trying to impart how what they feel to each other um, for different reasons. If you think about it, like Dazed and Confused is very similar to Waking Life. Because Days Confused is about Wiley Wiggins um, <laughs> drifting through all of these different people, and they're all trying to push on to him what they feel, it, like as as seniors or juniors in high school, like hmm, what they feel is the trick to hmm. high school. Like, no, this is what you got to do. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And they're all, and he finds himself like, I don't know, I'm getting advice from the football player. I'm getting advice from the stoners. I'm, I'm getting. I'm. He's sort of drifting around, and he's picking and choosing. It, in both films, he almost lacks agency, which is kind well, of interesting. I. Mm. It doesn't. It's not a lack of agency. Like there's that wonderful scene in Waking Life in the middle when he just sits down. Yeah, that's right. That, yeah, with the girl uh, who has the idea of the soap opera with people's fantasy lives, um, and he just sort of explains what's been happening to him. I think. He, I think Linkletter is probably in real life just a good listener, <laughs> and I think that's what Wiley Wiggins is in this movie. And I think this movie, what makes this movie the opposite of pretentious for me is it's not about here's someone, here's a character, and what they're speaking is what I believe, and here's another character, and what they're speaking is what I believe, and that's the whole movie. What the movie is actually about is sort of encountering these things and picking and choosing, and this is. Right, what to adopt? I'll take a little bit from this, and that's what you do throughout life. Whether you're consciously trying to read philosophers, or whether you just go through life, you know, with very meeting various people, like that's what you'll inevitably do is take a little bit of wisdom from what you've learned, and a little bit of wisdom from what this person has said, and this person has said, and you know, I always thought about this one thing that this one person always said to me, and you know, like stuff like that, like a little bit from your dad, a little bit from your mom, a little bit from your uncles, a little bit from some teachers you had, and that's how you sort of assemble yourself. And this movie is the process of speeded up um, sort of, of doing that. And some of them are Alex Jones. <laughs> like some of them <laughs> are f- fucking blathering, like foaming at the mouth, angry people like the, like the man in the prison who his whole, like he doesn't have a, a, a sort of peaceful philosophy. He's not mm-hmm. very contemplative. He is just pure anger incarnate. Yeah. And that's where he's at. Like that's, yeah. that's his present moment. And that's a, you know, and and I think I have to imagine someone as empathetic as Linkletter, and I, you get the idea watching his movies that he—that's the only way he can be. That and the fact that just recently, right before recording this podcast, it was announced that the uh, subject of the film Bernie would be released from prison under the condition that he lives with Richard Linkletter. Gosh, that's so bizarre, right? I'm just yeah, I don't know what to think about that. Like I. 
Well, for me, it it kind of makes the movie a lot better. I mean, I have to say that, you know, Patrick was like, hey, do you want to be on this on this episode of the podcast? And I was like, I don't know. What has Linklater done? He's like, well, he did Bernie. I was like, oh, my God. Because Bernie's like, I saw it last year and I just, I, I'm in love with this movie. Um, but something that's kind of been troubling for me is is the thought of um, that it it is a true story and that's something that i love about it i mean i i love movies that um that very consciously butt right up against um reality and fantasy and sort of blend the two i mean american splendor um is another movie that's like one of my favorites for the very yeah, same there's reason there's definitely documentary elements in bernie with the interview like almost errol morris like the interview but i, I feel but i if I'm correct, most of those people are actors. Um, most, but not all. And I mean, they, they shot a, they shot a lot in Carthage, and some people, um, that, like like some of the shorter interviews, um, like um, Marjorie Nugent's hairdresser is actually her hairdresser, oh, okay. and her neighbor is actually her neighbor, and a lot of like I think the extras and stuff are actually townspeople. Oh, cool. so there is a lot of reality, like in that movie. And I mean, I was just doing some research on it, and they changed like very few aspects of it, and. Like I and I'm on board with it because I mean this is ultimately a story about um someone who is experiencing emotional abuse. I mean even if it is this very like Cohen Brothers esque kind of story, quirky. it's it's quirky and it's like this dark comedy and um there's a lot of really funny elements. But I mean you know at, at the end of the day someone got abused and someone got murdered. Um so the fact that like Linklater is so involved with like the subjects of this movie and it's not just like. A, a way to exploit uh, and exploit that that's a harsh term but yeah he, <laughs> let's, let's be honest it is the way most true stories are adapted to films oh, is oh, exploitative sure. sure um and i i just the fact that he has an ethos you know that, that he is willing to like to, to take this man into his home and to go to bat for him in court like that that J- just brought the movie to to like a whole nother like tier of and I, affection in my heart i don't think you can be that <laughs> empathetic without being a really good listener and i think yeah. that is i think waking life is about how active the act of listening can be um it encourages you to lean in and to try to absorb what people are saying but it also just in sort of its structure it says it's okay if you don't get it all yeah just let it drift over you and try to get as much as you can and it's a really special movie i love I'll say it. that i'm i'm kind of i the more i watch it and the older i get the more i contemplate like what Philip K. Dick experienced and like this idea of time not really existing and then like it's this insane illusion like all that stuff is kind of the stuff that people think about when they're stoned or whatever but some some of it really hits home in this weird way to where I'm like uh it could I don't know but it could be real it could be true but whatever they're saying to me it's not necessarily like I'm going to take it as scripture or fact but I still find it oh my god so interesting and, and like, there's definitely stuff in there. Like the one guy who's like, "I will go salsa dancing with my soul." And like, there's just, there's just like moments where I'm rolling my eyes a little bit, and I can understand. But I, I don't, I don't understand people who think of like you know this whole movie as being boring or pretentious or you know just well, stuff you intellectualism. At, if you take it as face value, I can understand thinking that. Yeah, but there's more behind it all. And Absolutely. I'm, Regina, I oh, really, really quickly since it's a really short movie. Did you guys happen to uh, see the movie Tape? No, because that is one of the more interesting Linkletter movies because it's so experimental really? and filmed on like a home video on a camcorder. 
in an uh, Lansing, Michigan motel room. And Ethan Hawke, again, just being incredible uh, with his then wife, Uma Thurman. And it's a really interesting, it's, it's almost like a play where it's just three actors in one space really uh, playing psychological games with one another. Um, and I don't know, I think it's, it's a really interesting experiment for him because, uh, you know, it's, the themes are about memory and self-deception and, you know, perceptions of people from the past. And I don't want to give too much away in terms of the plot, but there's just an interesting twist later in the film involving wanting to frame somebody for something they did in the past and what that means in the present. Uh, but I think that's one of the more interesting Link Letter movies that people need to check out. It's only like 79 minutes long. I should check that out for sure. Yeah, it sounds good. It's, it's really, 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 really good. And I remember at the time seeing it, I was like, wow, I mean, Link Letter should be a playwright. I think that would be perfect for him, too. But the thing about so what's interesting is he makes dialogue heavy things, the, the things that you tend to think of as play like. Mm-hmm. But none of the before movies could be a play. You cannot, I mean, maybe before sunset, but like. The the traveling and the locales are so important. He yeah. does not have people sitting in a in a restaurant having these conversations. He has people driving around. He has people moving. He has people. Yeah, his films feel so vibrant and cinematic. Um, but yeah, in in another life, he could have been a playwright. But I'm so glad that we're in this in this world in this because you know every time you have a thought, uh, it creates an alternate universe. <laughs> That that could have happened, and I'm sure at one point he thought about being a playwright. And I'm glad we live in the one where he thought about being a filmmaker and did that. Who's that? Um, the lead singer of the Eels. His father came up with the multiverse theory. Really? It's really, yeah. It's really interesting hour long documentary about both the lead singer of the Eels and his relationship with his father, and how his father was just like so immersed in physics and all these really interesting things that eventually evolved into the multiverse theory. <laughs> then I'm like, wow, it's so crazy to think about that idea. But it is. and and then the first time I saw that wasn't first time I ever heard that idea was in Slacker. Uh, which I saw because Kevin Smith said, "Oh, that's the movie that made me want to be a filmmaker." I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think about that movie a lot in terms of Kevin Smith, and like, it's <laughs> there. It, it, there is something. It makes me like Kevin Smith a little more, if only because like there's something endearing about being a shitty version of Slacker. <laughs> like what other Slacker itself. Him? What's that? Hell, Hart- Hell Hartley's Trust. Well, I mean, that movie's that movie is just shit. Um, Clark is better than Trust. Mm-hmm. But before we mm-hmm. go on to that, um, uh, Regina, what yeah. other movies would you want? What other Linklater movie Linklater would you movies? want to talk um, about? I think I already said my piece about Bernie. Um, yeah. That's the. I mean, I mean, I had seen uh, Scanner Darkly and um, parts of Waking Life uh, previously, but um, I saw Bernie last summer and just automatically fell in love with it. Um, it's a little different from the other movies watching this past week that really kind of um, caught my attention. It didn't have the same themes. I mean, I guess there's that sort of um, theme of um, subjectiveness and kind of everyone having their own uh, piece of the story that you kind of see in like, you know, Dazed and Confused. Right, right. Um, but for the most part, it's sort of its own thing. It's a good balance between these um, sort of meditative um films um like you know the before series and like waking life and his you know lighter fare like school of rock um jack black is just transcendent in it i i just just 
dying every single scene watching him he's he's amazing um i think i think shirley mclean is perfectly cast um you know she just brings that um that that sense of like like wanting to um belong which from the research i was doing um that woman did not deserve to be portrayed in such a sympathetic manner but um she got that um i even like matthew mcconaughey which is a big admission for me to make in that movie well both Um, this and the newton boys and days and confused matthew mcconaughey just you wait very good performances yeah well okay that's fine true detective clocks being raced right twice a day and all um (laughs) (laughs) um i i love the the trope of um how how the talking heads are like almost the most dynamic part of that movie um as being this like greek chorus with these gorgeous like turns of phrases like like her nose is so stuck up in the air she drowned in a rainstorm i love it just I, I I don't have anything smart to say about that movie. I just I love it so much. Yeah, that's all. I love Days and Confused so much. Um, it's a watching movie. it, watching it next to all of these other Linkletter movies, particularly Waking Life and the Before movies. Um, I can't nearly say that it's his best movie. It has a lot of stuff in it that just feels um, sort of a little more watered down, a little more mainstream than Linkletter used to. But there's something. Um, probably this is probably just my own fear of death and and my own hopeless nostalgia <laughs> for for high school. But there's something sublime about the way that movie portrays high school as a instead of clicks like it's the it's the antidote um, to the uh, John Hughes kind of yeah. <laughs> high school portrait where it's just like a ton of fluid people who all sort of know each other. And that's that was my high school experience, and that's and. And the way people just sort of flow into each other and where those, you know, those groups are there, but they're, but they're, yeah, again, they're more, they're more fluid. Um, And just, it's so nostalgic and it does things that annoy the shit out of me in most movies and it, but it gets away with them. Like having that soundtrack. I really don't like when movies have just like, here's a song to let you know it was the (laughs) sixties. Like, here we go. Credence Clearwater. Like we're in Vietnam now. So here's fortune. It complements this world so well. Oh yeah. Because it's all, everything about it. It's all very specific about just like, these are what these kids are listening to. It's not the coolest music from the seventies. It's It's, the stuff that was on the radio. It's the stuff that was on the fucking radio. Exactly. And, um, I love all the characters. I love Wiley Wiggins in it. I love the actress who plays Sabrina, whose name I can't remember. Or pronounce. I love that it has all these different people who, you know, butt heads, but there's really only like two um, unsympathetic characters. There's Ben Affleck and there's Parker Posey. And those are the two just like extreme, like those are the assholes. Those are just the people who are just fucking dicks. And everyone else, like they can be kind of dicks. Um, Sasha, what's his name? That one uh, hypersexual uh, football player. Who you got? You got really upset because he had the best line at the end of the movie. Oh yeah, and he was a character you didn't like as much. Yeah, yeah. And he has that line about you know even if we didn't like it, we played this hard and blah blah blah. And I was just yeah. like, oh, why are you insightful? Played I don't as like hard you. as we could as we were stuck here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had as much fun as we could as we were stuck here. Yeah, like that character is amazing. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is amazing. Like people who you just normally find repellent in most movies, Linkletter has empathy for them and. Like Matthew McConaughey is literally an un 
<laughs> unambiguous, like, just predator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, he's just a sex offender in this movie, complete with a sex offender's mustache, and he is so <laughs> charming. Um, I love Dazed and Confused. It's, it's one of those things where it's not the best movie. I would say that both, uh, I would say Waking Life Before Sunrise and Before Midnight are all better than Dazed and Confused, but Dazed and Confused is easily my favorite uh, Linkletter movie. I think um, we're going to wrap things up here pretty quick, but I want to yeah. say I think Scanner Dark- Darkly is great. I know you think I, it's great? I do you do not have any problems? You have no problems with it? Because um, it's kind of incoherent. Like, the story is it's really weird. poorly told. Well, a lot of Phil K. Dick's movies are, are, are books, I should say, because I've read the story. And I would say that I'm often confused. But I understand, like, the overall theme and sort of the intent of what he's trying to drive about, like, the fluidity of identity and how, you know, substance abuse sort of leads to this crisis. And I I think what's interesting that I didn't pick up on initially was, you know, Winona Ryder's character and her place in this whole thing and sort of, like, almost setting Keanu Reeves up to become, you know... uh, know, Not almost... Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> right. And I think that whole twist, you know, towards the end, and a lot, I mean, I do, I will admit, a lot of it's confusing, a lot of it's, but I find it obviously visually interesting. And, yeah. God, Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson together. Oh, they're hilarious. amazing. Hilarious. <laughs> Every scene with Robert Downey Jr. is like a contender for best scene of that decade. Yeah. It just sort of captures this, like, cognitive dysfunction, that which is what that drug actually creates. And, you know, this sort of drug-fueled paranoia. Um, I even sort of like the preachiness at the beginning with, you know, know, with Keanu Reeves' character, you know, basically having a a, a meltdown while giving a speech. And I don't know, there's something about this movie, as as confusing as it is, I find really hypnotic and interesting. And that's because, like, I've been a huge Philip K. Dick and for you know years and years and years that this actually comes closest to capturing his voice. Yeah, I've never read any Philip of Philip K. Dick's fiction, so um, just coming at it from not knowing the story from the book, like it's incoherent. But the parts, I wish it was just the paranoia. <laughs> I wish there wasn't a complicated like conspiracy plot with like. I feel like that's the strongest parts. It to me, I, I, again, I haven't read any Philip K. Dick, but you know, that's all the parts of Naked Lunch I respond to the most are the sort of free flowing, kind of rambling, paranoia parts where uh, William S. Burroughs follows a, lo- a thought um, and he starts following it to its logical conclusion without first testing if any of <laughs> any of his conclusions are likely in the first place, um, which is what that whole scene when they're in the tow truck and all that. Like is it's a fucking masterclass of paranoia where it's just they accept that someone is breaking into their house. So now they need to figure out what to do about this person who clearly has broken into their house and not told them anything (laughs) like like all that's amazing. But the I thought the ending is kind of anticlimactic. I thought I don't I generally, you know, listeners know I generally don't like movies where a cipher is the main character. And I think, yeah, so. But uh, no, Scanner Darkly is definitely a movie I would say people should see because it's really interesting. It's just not a movie. It is. I love. Yeah, I'm kind of passionate about it more than most people, but I don't know if that just, again, 
the themes and the ideas going on and my interest in Philip K. Dick from the past sort of informed my more than avid response despite like not overly defending like I understand if people aren't as crazy about it as I am but I, I just think there's a lot going on in that movie that's interesting yeah I like it for its um, critique of the police how they're sort of um, portrayed in that movie as um, the, the directives not making a lot of sense like oh you have to spy on yourself now and being very like manipulative um, you know both of Keanu Reeves character and of the culture in general um, and that's something we actually didn't touch on which is something that I really enjoy about Linklater is that there is this really strong anti-authoritarian streak running through like all his movies whether a character's getting on a soapbox and complaining about the way things are or if it's just something that's like really subtle or if it's Jack Black being like you gotta stick it to the man like it's just it's in every <laughs> single film and I absolutely love it it's even Fuck the bears. football coach. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I've, man, he, the more we talk is, about him, the more I love him. He is just, like, he just feels like um, a college professor. He feels like the, the college professor Donald Sutherland plays in Animal House who just kind of smokes weed with the students. Like, he feels like <laughs> that if that college professor, instead of being a professor, made movies. Like, he has that kind of friendly, like, oh, come on in. Let's have a chat. Like, what's going on? What's going on? (laughs) Like, but, like, also very high-minded, but in the most friendly way you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm definitely excited to see Boyhood, which I think is coming out this month, actually, later in the month. So, everything I've seen it. It's only said summer. So, oh, okay. I think maybe release releases haven't been totally set, but man, maybe this maybe this month definitely we're going to have to see Boyhood. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. can't Let's wait. give our top three Richard Linklater movies, guys. All right, Jim, you go first. Oh, you always make me go first, which I, but I'm more than happy to this time. Sure. Um, number one, shockingly, is Waking Life. Number two is Before Midnight, which is surprises me after watching it a second time. <laughs> And number three is Dazed and Confused. Um, okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, I think my uh, my top would have to be Before Sunrise. Um, my second would be Waking Life, and my third would be Bernie. And can I just say really quick, after um, prepping for this episode and watching all these movies, I think I have a new favorite director. Really? Richard yeah. Linklater's nice. your new favorite director? I think so. Sorry, Edgar Wright and Wes Anderson. <laughs> indeed indeed okay so my number one is dazed and confused um my number two is before sunrise and my number three is waking life all right yeah yeah and also we didn't mention school of rock but school of rock for the kind <laughs> so of good. movie it is for a mainstream light pg-13 kids comedy yeah. that movie's fucking amazing I, I know. Agree. I know. Mike White is a favorite of yours, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, he really did an amazing. Like, obviously, the difference between Chuck and Buck, or uh, <laughs> what is that? What that movie's called? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, wow, the difference, difference. Between, between that and School of Rock, or Enlightened in School of Rock, is enormous. But School of Rock's amazing. Agreed. Um, you know, Patrick, I couldn't be more stoked for the next episode. Honestly. What's the next episode about? Vim Vendors. So V-I-M-V-E-N-D-R? No, he's he's German. Oh, he's a German filmmaker. Yeah, like Vinnie the Pooh. I I don't know. (laughs) The other German filmmaker. Yeah, I don't don't know if that voice I just did was uh, Greek or Spanish, but it was very hairy. (laughs) Um, 
I think you'll be yeah. really. You're going to be. I'm really curious to see what you're going to think because because we because we watched Paris, Texas in the past for a film club movie club uh, episode movie club. There you go, uh, podcast. And I wasn't a fan of Paris, Texas. You're crazy. Um, yeah, I I perhaps I am because everyone knows that Paris, Texas is great except for me. So maybe I'm crazy, and I'm excited to see Wings of Desire. I'm excited to see. Um, what are some of his other movies? The American Friend, which is actually a Patricia Highsmith adaptation, I believe, mm-hmm. based on the same story in Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, oh, interesting. De- Dennis Hopper plays the Matt Damon part, if I recall. Dennis um, Hopper? That, no, well, now I have to see it. That sounds yeah, very it's, interesting. It's, 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 I haven't seen it in years, but he he's a master of the road movie, and... I don't want to make it all about Paris, Texas, because sure. you know <laughs> everybody knows how I feel about it. I'm certainly going to bring it up maybe later in the show a little bit, but I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, and I need to get the name of the guest who emailed me. Insert that here, Jim. Sean Pierce of punctuationfilms.com. Oh, cool. that guy's great. Yeah. Poor girl. <laughs> what a great, what a great email address. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you. Uh, Regina, for coming on. Oh my god, I had a. Thanks for inviting me on, you guys. I had a lot of fun. It's it's uh, it's nice that you made the trek all the way here. Yeah. To record. Out of all the excuses I've ever come up with to not go to the gym, this has been my favorite. <laughs> you guys awesome. make a good team. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You guys make a good team too. Yeah. yeah. High five, Jim. Jim and I make make a good team potentially. <laughs> Too. Anyway. Um, so, Jim, uh, wait, first, where can people learn more about you, Regina? Learn more about me? Let's see. So, I'm on, um, uh, on Twitter at Tesseract, T E S S A underscore R A C K E D. Um, I co edit a poetry, visual arts, and flash fiction journal, CSHS Quarterly. You can find us at CSHSQ.wordpress.com. Please submit. We know you're out there. You have a sonnet cycle about like Steven Soderbergh or someone. I know you do. We really, really want to read it. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Awesome. I want to open up a burger place called Steven Soda Burgers. <laughs> you should that do would it. be good. And, uh, and, and, and the logo will just be the animated Steven Soda Burgers from Life. <laughs> and I also want to make a documentary about fraternities called Hazed and Abused. I think that would be great. <laughs> that works too. Yeah. Hey, See, Jim. You know, you know it's getting late when this is where my brain is headed. That's fine. You can find me at Patrick Apollo on Twitter. I'm at Patrick Apollo on Letterboxd. My Viewing journal is marthamarcynashandyoung.wordpress.com, but I still haven't updated that for like a month. So uh, Letterboxd is where you can find all the latest. Um, Jim? Or just add him on Facebook like everybody else in the world. I'm back on Facebook because I'm going to start writing for a blog that said, you should be on Facebook because we have a group there. I was like, okay. Anyway, this is a Grand Rapids-based movie review blog called TheFilmTakeout.com. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, this guy named Dave contacted me, and he's a fan of the show, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll throw some reviews your way, absolutely. And um, I'm over at InstantGym.com, and Instant Gym on Twitter, and Instant Gym on Letterboxd. I, and then after after that, I I, I inserted in my head the uh, Muppets flail <laughs> <laughs> that you clearly did. It's a Jim on Letterboxd! Ah! 
or Mr. Bill. Yeah. Not bad. Really good episode, guys. Thanks yeah. so much. Why am all I right. thanking Patrick, too? That's okay. Good. We all Thank you, Patrick. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Aww. All right, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks for Vim Vendors. All right. Bye. Just in time. Will be you, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Would the Ted Levine show up all of a sudden? Yeah. (laughs) I love you very much. Put the lotion in the basket. Oh Oh, yeah. I know, right? (laughs) We all just (laughs) orgasm just then.